Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to the One Sweet Dream Get Back series, where we talk to a number of amazing guests. Before we jump into our show, however, I wanted to do a bit of a backgrounder. The film can be a little bit disorienting because you're just dropped into this three-week period without any real sense of a larger story or context. And so the inclination is to make meaning from what we see in the film. And that can be a little bit dangerous because the film only represents three weeks out of a 12-year partnership in an unusual situation with a group of people who speak in code and are well aware of the cameras on them in a period that follows a year of massive upheaval within the band. So it's a complex situation to analyze and draw conclusions from without a larger context to understand why everyone is behaving the way they are and we don't really have this. Jackson prepped us by providing us with a summary of their career, but what he didn't include was a primer for where they were personally or interpersonally at that time. And I get why he didn't do that because that would have required another eight hour film. Nevertheless, this background is important for clarifying what's going on. And of course, this is what we did with the breakup series. We analyzed the two years surrounding the breakup to understand the emotional roots, actions, and reactions that led to the breakup of the Beatles. And because the players were constantly reacting to each other, it's critical to know what happened in the time directly prior to January 1969, when the film begins. So to really understand the film better, I personally had to think through what we had learned even though I've spent so much time on the breakup, after I viewed it the first time, I had to stop and think, okay, what do we know to make sense of everything? So I thought that since it was helpful for me, it might be helpful for other listeners of One Sweet Dream to go through a recap of what we discussed in the breakup series as sort of a primer to this period. And so right now, I'm going to do a little preamble to set the stage before we jump into our show. Here we go. Okay, this is the recap of the breakup series prior to January 1969, which basically encompasses the first episode of the breakup series. As a reminder, in the breakup series, we focused our analysis mostly on the Lennon and McCartney relationship because we believe it was the fracture in their creative partnership that was the root cause of the breakup. This is not to suggest that there weren't many other factors. There were. Nor is it to suggest that they were more important than Harrison or Starr. They weren't. Nevertheless, their partnership was central to the success and dynamics of the Beatles, so issues in their relationship had wide-ranging implications. 
Therefore, to understand the breakup, we needed to investigate what happened between Lennon and McCartney. Our breakup series began in 1968 because we identified 1968 as the time when the dynamics of the band, and specifically the Lennon-McCartney partnership, radically shifted. So we looked at the events of this period. In fact, even going back one year from the Get Back project to the beginnings of 1968, we find a very different John Lennon, a John Lennon who is completely devoted to the Beatles, admitting to Beatles biographer Hunter Davies, he lost himself if he didn't connect with the Beatles, that he needed to see them to see himself. Further, his wife Cynthia Lennon commented on how much John seemed to need the Beatles. In fact, in her opinion, they seemed to need him less than he needed them. So right off the bat, this challenges the dominant narrative, which suggests that in 1968, John Lennon was bored of the Beatles. Contemporaneous interviews such as these reflect that in fact, he was all in, as were the other Beatles. Artistically speaking, the Beatles had just completed a banner year, reaching new creative heights with their commercial and cultural power greater than ever. In fact, later in life, Lennon claimed that Pepper was a peak for Lennon and McCartney, with Lennon practically moving in with McCartney, according to George Martin, to facilitate songwriting. They collaborated intensely on the album with an increasingly dominant McCartney, but nevertheless, it was a time of great closeness. The album itself, Sgt. Pepper, was an artistic triumph, and it was followed by the All You Need Is Love, Our World performance. Now, McCartney identified this as an extremely happy period in his life, while Lennon also admitted that this was a time when he was increasingly happy in coming out of the depression that had started a year earlier. In fact, John's close friends confirmed to Hunter Davies that John was less competitive, happier, and easier to be around at this time. And Lennon himself went on TV and said he was feeling happier in this period. It was during this time that Lennon spearheaded an initiative, a dream of the Beatles moving to Greece to live on an island together. And he was really intent on this idea. Not only did he consider Greece, but also British villages, according to Ringo Starr. McCartney was apparently less enthusiastic about this idea, but nevertheless, he went along with it. It seems to have been Lennon's desire for his Beatles family to be together in a contained location. While this dream did not come to fruition, the Beatles did engage as a group in a new pursuit, the teachings of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Unfortunately, this coincided with the death of manager Brian Epstein, who, though going through his own struggles, was nevertheless essential to the emotional and professional well-being of the group. Lennon identified this as a setback in his recovery from his depression. Potentially, Brian's death triggered what Paul McCartney has identified as Lennon's lifelong paranoia, that he was a jinx to the males in his life. In an effort to manage their collective grief, McCartney, as usual, turned to work, spearheading and accelerating the plan to do the Magical Mystery Tour, a film that had been conceived earlier in the year and which Lennon later admitted to enjoying, while they continued to study with Maharishi. They also, as advised, created a new business enterprise called Apple, also largely spearheaded by McCartney. So, in 1967, not only were the Beatles studying together, traveling together, making records and films together, 
they had also re-signed their contract together for another 10 years, and they had just started a company together. The year ended with the Beatles premiering the Magical Mystery Tour film and with the engagement of Paul and longtime girlfriend, actress Jane Asher. In early 1968, the Beatles and their significant others traveled to India to study intensively with the Maharishi. It was a period of great creativity for the Beatles, where Lennon and McCartney continued to write together, apparently often taking off to Paul's room in the afternoon to write songs together as mentioned in the Get Back film. It was in India that the Beatles wrote the bulk of the material that would appear on the White Album. After two weeks of study, Ringo and Maureen left. A couple of weeks later, McCartney and Asher left India as planned. Lennon later identified McCartney and Starr leaving India as the beginning of the end of the Beatles. During this time, Lennon received correspondence from artist Yoko Ono. Harrison and Lennon stayed on for an additional three weeks, and Lennon became, according to his own recollection, increasingly depressed, writing songs like Look at Me, I'm So Tired, and Your Blues. The experience in India ended in drama, with various accusations being made against the Maharishi, and so George and John and their wives returned to London. This unceremonious ending clearly upsetting Harrison and Lennon. Close friend Pete Shotton, who was John's companion at the time, remembers the period after India as the lowest point in Lennon's life, a time when he felt humiliated and despondent and turned again to drugs and booze. It was during this period that Lennon took LSD and was, in his words, built back up by Derek Taylor and Neil Aspinall and Pete Shotton. It is commonly reported that Lennon left India to connect with Ono but his mood following India does not seem consistent with a romantic high, nor does Lennon date this as the beginning of their relationship. Nevertheless, Lennon does recall Ono making an appearance during his LSD sessions with Taylor and being very supportive of him. In Lennon's recollections, he does not mention McCartney being around during this period. McCartney was perhaps dealing with his own romantic issues with Asher and the setup of Apple. So when it was proposed that Lennon and McCartney go to New York to launch Apple, friends believed it would be good for Lennon. In New York, McCartney and Lennon stayed together in the apartment of Nat Weiss. It was during this trip that McCartney connected with Linda Eastman. Lennon later remarked that it was on this trip that he noticed Eastman for the first time. And he also realized that this was not the first time that McCartney had met her. Within days of their return, Lennon faced another crisis, taking LSD and holding a board meeting to announce to his concerned bandmates that he was Jesus Christ, that he believed he was Jesus Christ. Following this, the band went to lunch, Lennon returned home with Shotton, and later in the evening, he invited Yoko Ono to join him. This was, according to Lennon, the beginning of his romantic union with Yoko Ono. Following this, John Lennon separated from wife Cynthia Lennon. Then the Beatles went back into the studio, where Jeff Emmerich and others such as Barry Miles noted a new distance between Lennon and McCartney, and a new anger brewing in Lennon. Lennon was now also always accompanied by Yoko Ono, which sometimes created great tension among the members of the group, which was later recalled by all other members of the band 
as well as by George Martin and Neil Aspinall. The White Album seems to have been by terms productive as well as uniquely difficult and intense. And although there are reports of the sessions being filled with highs and closeness, there are an equal number of reports of it being filled with tension. So much so that George Martin chose to go on holiday in the middle of the sessions, and Emmerich quit. Nevertheless, the Beatles continued to turn out gold, and in November, the Beatles completed and released what is now known as the White Album. During this period, John and Yoko collaborated on some side projects and put out the album Two Virgins. And at some point in 1968, they started doing heroin. Also during this time, John finalized his divorce to Cynthia and Ono suffered a miscarriage. They were also busted for drugs. In December, Lennon performed with a rock and roll circus directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. In this period, Paul broke up with fiance Jane Asher and after a few months of living like a crazed bachelor, got serious about Linda Eastman. By the end of the year, she and daughter Heather had moved into Paul's home in London. After the completion of the White Album, Paul, Linda, and Heather traveled to New York, Scotland, and Portugal to visit Hunter Davies. Also during this time, Paul produced and co-wrote songs with Donovan for Apple artist Mary Hopkins's debut album, Postcard. Donovan, Donovan and Hunter Davies later recalled that Paul was highly creatively productive in this period. Throughout this time, Harrison continued his own creative and musical exploration, releasing the album Wonderwall Music. He also traveled to the U.S., where he spent time with musicians such as Dylan and the band. Ringo also had projects on his radar, including films and musical projects that he was considering. Two months after releasing the White Album, the Beatles returned to the studio in early 1969 to commence what is now known as the Get Back Sessions. In terms of themes, 1968 was a transformational year, particularly for Lennon and McCartney. The year began with their partnership fully intact, with a deeply committed John Lennon, a man who loved his Beatles family so much he wanted to move to an island with them, and a dedicated but creatively ambitious Paul McCartney, a man focused on the Beatles' next great thing and building the Beatles' empire. And it ended with both men in new relationships and somewhat estranged from each other. We trace some of the potential reasons for this. How Paul may have inadvertently triggered some of John's insecurities and fear of abandonment, perhaps heightened by Brian's death, either through his engagement to Asher, his departure from India, his relationship with Linda Eastman, his focus on Apple, or some form of real or imagined rejection. We hypothesized how John may have been seeking a level of closeness, intimacy, and security with McCartney at a time when McCartney was focused on creative and romantic interests and therefore inattentive to Lennon's personal needs. Lennon later complained that when he was going through murder, McCartney was full of confidence. He also commented that McCartney often hurt him through insensitivity doing things like soliciting minor input to their music from other people, which seems to have been, in Lennon's mind, a betrayal of their partnership. Lennon also felt that the physical distance between them led their partnership to become, in his words, false. 
perhaps because Lennon seemed to crave and need an almost merging with his creative partner. After working with Janov, Lennon intimated that the worst pain for him was, to quote, that of not being wanted by his parents, realizing that they did not need him in the way that he needed them. This echoed a very similar sentiment expressed by Cynthia Lennon to Hunter Davies in 1968. Years later, Yoko Ono commented that no one ever hurt Lennon as much as McCartney, and perhaps this lack of reassurance and attention at a time when he needed it, and all these little perceived hurts may have led the highly sensitive Lennon to conclude, perhaps erroneously, that McCartney was not as invested in their partnership as he was. Then, in the spring of 1968, Lennon aggressively upended his life, committing to Yoko, who he later claimed was the answer, and who provided him with a life raft when he was drowning. We highlighted that John brought new romantic partner Ono into the studio, both as security and support for him, but also as a provocation to his creative partners, in particular, McCartney. This certainly turned the tables and all eyes were again on Lennon. However, it also instigated a separation between Lennon and McCartney, a fracture which, with Ono always present, became increasingly difficult to resolve. Further, Ono was well aware of the emotional threat that McCartney posed to her. In an audio diary from 1968, Ono reflected that McCartney was being kind to her, but she also noted the strong connection between Lennon and McCartney, commenting that had McCartney been a woman, she was certain he would have been a great threat to her. At this time, McCartney was going through his own personal turmoil, getting over the breakup with Asher, reacting to Lennon's latest moves, and finally finding his own sense of security with Linda Eastman, who though less codependent than Ono, was nevertheless strong and inspirational to McCartney. We hypothesize how Paul may have misread some of John's actions, which were meant to elicit attention and appreciation, and instead of reassuring Lennon, unintentionally exacerbated the situation by backing off, working independently as a reaction to John having Yoko in the studio, which Lennon noticed. In fact, years later, Lennon recalled that McCartney's withdrawal in 1968 made him wonder why McCartney didn't leave the Beatles at that point. Because to Lennon, McCartney seemed to want to do things on his own, probably further supporting Lennon's belief that McCartney was self-interested and cared more about his own success than their partnership or Lennon. It seems that Lennon in his paranoia earlier in the year may have aggressively upended his life and his partnership in an attempt to feel better. McCartney, unaware of Lennon's feelings, may have misread Lennon's actions, giving him additional space and freedom, which he did not necessarily want. It seems that in this period, their actions and reactions triggered insecurity in each other and things began to spiral, resulting in additional distance between the two partners who cared for and needed each other immensely. Both men had always been primary to each other. Cynthia Lennon admitted this, and Jane Asher admitted to being jealous of this. This distance, however, allowed both to bond with new romantic partners, who did not necessarily replace the other creatively, but it did complicate matters because their relationship had always existed in a unique zone, which Lennon later compared to a marriage, with the interpersonal and the creative merging. At the end of the year, Lennon gave an interview to Jonathan Kopp, 
from Rolling Stone, saying that things were both better and worse than they were before. One gets the sense that Lenin may have set off a chain of events that resulted in some outcomes that he did not intend. In fact, in the first episode of Get Back, Michael Lindsay Hogg refers to the wound between Lenin and McCartney, and Lenin confirms that he hopes he can heal it. In the breakup series, we call this period Make or Break, because it seems that this period, January 1969, was an inflection point, a time when Lennon and McCartney were perhaps attempting to renegotiate their relationship. Unlike the traditional narrative, however, we see two men who are still highly engaged with each other, but unsure how to proceed. It was as if by the end of 1968, they were in a bit of a standoff or at an impasse where the requirements were unspoken, each waiting for the other to make the first move. While this remained unresolved, they were willing to return to the studio. As Hunter Davies noted, working with McCartney seemed to make Lennon more alive. And as George Martin commented, they needed each other like mad. Clearly their desire to create together remained palpable, but their inability to communicate and their ongoing mind games continues to magnify issues. And to complicate matters, they weren't the only members in this band. There were other members who were demanding attention and recognition for their own brilliant work and contributions. And were getting a little bit tired of all the attention and drama being focused on Lennon and McCartney. So not only was this a band dealing with a marriage in crisis, but a family that had major issues. Nevertheless, they were still a family and they still were willing to try. So this is all at play when they come back in January 1969. So that's my recap. The stage has been set for the Get Back documentary and our discussions. And so now, on with the show. Hello there, Diana. Hello, Tanya. Welcome to the Once We Dream Get Back series, where my guests and I discuss, admire, debate, and obsess over Peter Jackson's stunning and epic eight-hour documentary series, 
get back. Of course you're doing a series. <laughs> of course, of course. I can absolutely do a series about a series. Uh-huh. Right. It's kind of the point yeah. of the podcast. Or at least absolutely. or at least this podcast. So yeah, we're gonna go deep and you know spend way way, way too much time diving into the minute details, but that's kind of the fun of it. And given the richness of the film and the content we have to explore, you know, all of which I find incredibly exciting, um, and all the work that we've done on the Breakup series and the time and energy I have spent researching the Breakup period, I thought it warranted, even required, multiple episodes to do it justice. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, okay, so first, before we, we jump in, tell me, because we haven't really talked about this. What did you think of the film? <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I, I loved parts of it. Yeah. Because uh, you know why? It, it, it just it gave me additional insight to them yeah, as people. Yeah. And, um, and you know, as musicians. So, I mean, I love that part of it. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like I, I guess I feel like I, I know them a bit better now. Right. Um, I mean, obviously it's a little slow. Sometimes what? at least it was for me. I, for me it was. For me. But, but also the slowness, though, it really... It did really bring them to life for me, though, in ways that nothing else has. Like, I, like, I feel like I know them better now, and I, and I like them better yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is your favorite to watch? Uh, you know, I'm not watching for one of them. I'm, I'm so, so glued to the interpersonal dynamics between them that it's the soap opera between them that I'm watching. So you can't take one of them out. Okay. They're all, they're all fascinating, I think. I mean, like, like I said, I find every minute of it fascinating, but you know, I'm a crazy Beatles fan that has a Beatles podcast. And you know, the 11 part deep dive into the breakup. Yeah. I mean, there's like, it brings like a humanity to them, I suppose, that that I haven't, that's not that I haven't seen before. It's just like, there's like a normalcy to everybody that. Uh, right, right, you're able to observe That I appreciate, yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, being a fly on the wall, I like that yeah, aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that the, the pace, the detail, the scale, you know, that aspect of it is both the film's mm -hmm. strength and its weakness, you know, prob yeah. probably depending on your level of interest, right? But clearly it's a win if at the end of the day you like them better and sort of like, yeah. appreciated them more. I mean, I think that's a huge win. But Right, you know, and I mean, it keeps you watching it. Like, I, that's the thing. I'm like, well, I have to see if next episode something happens. happens. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas for me, I had to take breaks. Because it's so, so overwhelming. Much there was happening. so much going on. Exactly. I felt like it was so dense that I'd be like, oh, I have to think about this. It took me forever to watch it the first time because, but, oh. but you know what? Like, obviously I'm, I'm approaching it from such a different perspective. You know, everything that he includes <laughs> is meaningful because I know the audio. So like my brain is working at multiple levels. Part of it is just so happy to see the film. It looked so beautiful. I hadn't seen the visuals, you know, we had very grainy visuals and it was cut up and, you know, uh, so seeing it all put together and seeing the body language and the film in order and seeing them like react to each other, the eye contact, it just adds a level of nuance. And, um, you know, so I was super excited. And then it, it became a little bit clearer to me that this is a story, and this is not, I want to make this clear, this is not a criticism of Peter Jackson. He had to cut, he had to cut like over 50 hours of film and 100 hours of audio, like he had to make yeah. decisions. But this means he's telling his version of what mm -hmm. he thinks is the most important. That's his job. So, the, you know, no mm -hmm. criticism there, but 
he cut things that I think were really important. Like what? Like what? I want to know what you. Oh well. What you oh, wish well, you saw. We're gonna go into that in the episode, so okay. I can't. Yeah, I can't divulge this here. Right. But this is his prerogative, and so again, I think he did an astonishing job. But I'm trying to analyze both. What more can I learn from what he's laid out? What story is Peter Jackson telling? And then thinking through what additional story is being told that wasn't captured by the film. So like all of these things are going through my mind and I sort of tried to tease them out in different episodes. You should just go into the like, like the cutting room floor and pick up everything that he left behind. Oh, well, and don't then think I'm not going make, to. Make, make the documentary part two. Well, you know, the, the hope is, is that he's going to release a longer version of this, you know, an extended version. <laughs> so for what? people like me, it would be wonderful. For people like you, would might be torture. But um, yeah, so um, so tell me, you said that you liked all of the uh, the Beatles better. What, what, what did you think of them? Okay, so first of all, Paul, uh, it's, it's uncanny. He, he looks so much like this... Uh, well, like this guy that I was a little obsessed with when I first moved to the West Coast. Um, but he, I, I just, well, I just couldn't, uh, I, I don't know, I haven't thought about that person in a very, very long time. And it was just sort of, well, it was just interesting to observe him like that. <laughs> Look at like, like, I just never in a million years thought that the, that this person looked like Paul McCartney in any way. But interesting. There I was staring at Paul thinking, oh my God, all I can think about is this guy. So well, eh, yep. there you go. Paul has that effect on people. Um, <laughs> Caitlin Moran, who's a writer I like, uh, wrote that Paul is impossibly hot, which I think is pretty, pretty accurate. You know, he was called the cute one. And I think in this, he doesn't look cute. He looks intense with the, the black hair and the black beard. It's a very dramatic look, you know, and he looks a little mm -hmm. more substantial. John, on the other hand, is adorable. Like, didn't you find like John looks so sweet and beautiful yeah, and well, yeah, it's a very yeah. boyish innocence to him. In yeah, this. yeah, yeah. But he also looked like like when I when I visualize what John looks like. I mean, I I think of him looking exactly the way he looked in this documentary. Though, ah, uh, interesting. So that is John's iconic look to you. Kind yeah. Of. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably for a lot of people. Whereas Paul. I don't think this is his iconic look. It isn't iconic look no. that, that I think beardless. Be, yes, exactly. I think people who are in the know think that McBeardy is is where it's at, but you know, it's not kind of what he's known for. No, I like the beard. Yeah. I love the beard. My personal favorite is about a couple of years later when we just get stubble, which is like <laughs> you know, my preferred look. Perfect blend. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> what did you think of George? Um, well, very dapper, yes. wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, that George is like a, a moody kind of supermodel, you know, in his pinks and purples. I loved. I know, I love his clothes. I loved his clothes. And interestingly, did you notice that often Paul and John were wearing <laughs> versions of the same thing? Uh, of course, it makes sense. I know. It only makes sense. I know. At, at some point, I was like, wait, John is now wearing a Henley with a vest, which it looks entirely different on the two of them, but they kind of are wearing similar things, whereas George has his own thing going on. And I love, like, he's got the world's most beautiful hair. What's your what's your take on the mustache? Well, I mean, I, I love the Beatles with the mustache. Like, to, I, it just must telegraph to me 
Like, you know how you said that you see John and you're like, well, that's what John Lennon looks like. For some reason, I see the Beatles with mustaches and it conjures like 1967 wizards. And so- Wizard phase. Yeah, and so they're beautiful. <laughs> I, I love it. But any other man, if you put any other man in front of me with a mustache, I'm completely confused. No. I'm like, I don't, no. I don't know if you're good looking or not. I'm no, confused. Pedophile. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or ironic, whereas like clean shaven, stubble or beard completely can assess whether they're hot and so yeah the the mustache throws me except on a beetle in which case i think that george looks fabulous with a, the mustache well so do you think in the clothing department yeah. do you think it's john copying paul or they're both doing something similar on a subconscious level i don't know i think they're always kind of on a similar kind of wavelength i mean they do look quite different in their clothes because they're different looking at this point you know that john is skinnier than usual i think it's probably subconscious i don't know like sometimes they showed up in the same because color. like i know that i um very consciously copy everything that you wear <laughs> Well, that's because I'm ridiculously stylish, no? <laughs> you are. And so I unapologetically <laughs> uh, replicate everything that you have on every time I see you. Well, and I let you. And so it, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> exactly. And that is why if we ever go out together, I have to check with you <laughs> uh, to find out what you're wearing. I, I appreciate so that. So that, yes. Well, yeah, and then because you always get first dibs because you're always the person <laughs> that buys the thing first. Yeah, so I don't know who's the, who's the lead with them. I mean, generally... Probably Paul. Well, maybe Paul at this point. Like, John does have some of these iconic looks. I don't know. Like, Paul was particularly stylish in the 60s, and then I don't know what happened to him in the 70s. Um, so who, who knows? Paul at some point was all in black, and that looked amazing. Um, I wish he would have stuck with that because then he pulled out some not so good looks. Um, whereas I, I love John in his iconic white, all white looks. I think that looked great. And, you know, Ringo, I just think like Ringo is surprisingly beautiful and kind of a low key hang dog. Like, I, I don't know. When I look at him, I'm like, he's he's adorable. OK, so wait, I want to hear what you think of the documentary. Oh, Okay, well, that's a big question that, uh, that's why I needed multiple episodes. I don't wanna to give too much away because that's what I explored with my guests, but just top line. I think that it's a brilliant, gorgeous, astounding piece of work. And so what we have is an incredible document that allows us to observe and enjoy the Beatles. And it's, you know, for, for people like me, it's just a joy. It gives us a lot of information, which again is a bonanza for a podcast where we just <laughs> love to talk about interpersonal dynamics. You know, we've got hours and hours to watch. So it's great. Overall, I think the Beatles come off incredibly well. Their musicianship and creativity is off the charts. Their connection and love for each other is palpable and obvious. And they're so charming and magnetic and gorgeous and so all of that's amazing. And I also think it dispels so many myths about this period, which is a huge, huge win from my perspective. Okay, so, so cool. So, but how, how are the episodes different from one another? Well, they were recorded at, at different times with different people. Some were recorded immediately. Like, in, in fact, I talked to one of my guests before the full documentary had come out. So I, I really just wanted his impression because he had screened it. Whereas I did a bit of a round table as soon as it came out. And that was just for fun, like top 
top level impressions, like first take on it. And then I wanted more time to think about it. And I did a couple of episodes with um, people that I trust to go deep with. So, you know, there's gonna be multiple takes on this and uh, I think they're all amazing. I'm so proud to share all of them. Um, I can't believe I've been so lucky to be able to talk to such a wonderful group of people. Mm-hmm. And, and they all bring their unique take on it based on their experience. Each of my interviews goes a little bit deeper into what's going on into different facets of, of the documentary. Oh, that's so great. I can't wait. Yeah, there's lots of fun things to discuss. Um, now that we've had the recap and we've had our introduction, I guess all that's left is to uh, jump into the interview. <laughs> all right. Okay, so what, what is on the agenda for today? Okay, so the one that I want to start with is the episode that I did with Paul Thompson and Dan Ruthkin. We recorded this on the weekend that Get Back came out. I was still watching it until I turned on uh, record for this episode. So it was like incredibly fresh. We hadn't really had time to think too deeply about it, but we had a ball talking about it. And these uh, two men are both brilliant and insightful and seriously lovely men. So um, I'm really excited to share this episode. Well, that's exciting because these are your first thoughts on the series. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right. Okay, so this is Paul Thompson and Dan Rivkin talking about Get Back. It is. Here we go. Dan, you and I have talked about going in the weeds before. Um, why don't you explain why you are the perfect person to go in the weeds with me? And this is Dan <laughs> well, Rivkin, everyone. Well, I've been blogging at They May Be Parted uh, for almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in January. Um, I, I always want to know kind of what the deal was. I've had, like, I guess, a lot of us, the old bootlegs, the Black Album, and the more extensive stuff as time kind of went on. And then I downed the torrent with the idea that one day I'd, I'd dig into it. Uh, because, you know, what do we all know? We all know that Lampy uh, broke up the Beatles, and somehow, you know, just to get the old magic back, they went ahead and did Abbey Road. And... Um, <laughs> And then they finally called it quits. And if you watch Lampy and you listen to Lampy, then you're watching the band deteriorate in progress and all that kind of stuff. And it, it, it just never added up. So I went ahead and realized how few people really did go through and listen to all 70 or 80 hours. So I ended up starting to listen to these tapes and I thought, well, I should make something out of this rather than just sort of uh, listen to them and just get the satisfaction of knowing what happened. And the more I wrote about it, uh, the more I realized that there was a lot more to the story than all of us have been told for all this time. And it, it gained a lot of traction because a lot of other people, like like you guys and many others, kind of realized, wow, this really doesn't add up. There, there has to be yeah. something more to this. Mm-hmm. And the beauty yeah. of the, the day and age that we're in is that we have so many, not just voices willing to argue, obviously, uh, Diana, you, you among them, um, foremost among them, uh, but the, the idea that 
we could we could research now in a better way than we could research even 10 years ago or 15 years ago mm -hmm. and we have access to so much more and so much more uh discussion amongst ourselves that, that we could sort of crack this code in a way that that either people didn't try to before or people couldn't before and um that was a fun way to spend my mornings and weekends. <laughs> yeah, it's a phenomenal resource. And and it's interesting because Dan and I have gone so deeply into the weeds. Dan, you more than me. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time on the breakup period. So what I bring mm. to the table is a larger context than that very forensic dive that you've done. Mm. But I think that uh, the whole story plays into what's going on, which is something that you miss when you're watching. You know, you need more information to understand why they're acting the way that they do. And you don't really get that from even the eight hours that we have. But anyways, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, I don't think you did. I think I was done. <laughs> or I can go on. <laughs> but um, but I, I enjoy the research. That's something else. How how much of a historic document this is, even for things having nothing to do with the Beatles. Talking about fashion, seeing everyone with a newspaper. And there is a lot of smoking in it. Oh, my a God. Lot, a lot of smoking. They, like, you know, as soon as you finish one, you start another one. Okay. You know. It's not just it's cigarettes. Very, cigars. Cigars yeah. and cigarettes, too. Yeah. Yes. It's, it, i got to tell you what. It's very glamorous. And I don't like it. Very glamorous. It. In part, yeah. because I'll tell you what, it, it looks like I, I'd love to have a cigarette and I haven't had one. <laughs> I spent my whole life avoiding it. And it's like, they, they look amazing. I know but they maybe, do. maybe they they're amazing. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, they look so cool. You know what made me laugh is when they were pulling Michael Lindsay Hogg up onto the roof and he looked like he was <laughs> he's like a doll, wasn't potatoes. he? <laughs> he did. Yeah. And, and the funny thing to me is he, <laughs> he looked like a dead body and then he still got his cigar. I couldn't believe it. It's like the, it was permanently there. I think I don't, it doesn't look like Michael Lindsay Hogg does that much. Uh, physical exercise, just the way that he's dragged on that roof. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Not an athlete. No. Okay, so Paul, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your background too? I mean, I've already had you on the show, but you know, just for yeah, sure, for the people yeah, who missed session. it. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I am a scholar. I'm a, I'm a researcher, and I my research is based around creativity and cultural production in popular music. I'm a recording engineer. I'm a musician. Um, and so my research is around the creative process of making records. Um, and in my first book, I spent a whole chapter talking about the process of John Lennon writing Strawberry Fields Forever, beginning in Almeria in Spain, and then moving to the demo stage um, at his home in London, and then Abbey Road, and then enter Dave Harry's, enter George Martin, enter the creative collective of Abbey Road. Um, and that was my first sort of taste researching the Beatles and then um we've just I've just alongside my uh, academic dad my guru professor Philip McIntyre who's at the <laughs> University of Newcastle in Australia and uh, so we just we've just uh, completed a book which is called uh, Paul McCartney and his creative practice the Beatles and beyond interestingly uh, a couple, it was three weeks ago now Paul McCartney did a little um a little uh, thing at the South Bank Centre in London on his new book the lyrics and uh, and so I went down and I obviously got the book and um, one of the pictures from this sequence from our front cover is in there and we've got a better one. So that's Yay. cool. Uh, that's the only win that we have because uh, he's the New York Times bestseller and we are not. So, well, you know what? I think they're going to go to you when they realize he actually doesn't say anything in his book. So then, <laughs> and I think this will be good because this is such an, an extraordinary dive into their creative practice. So, mm. you know, I can't wait to talk to you about that. 
<laughs> okay, so why don't we just jump into overall impressions? Paul, you emailed me saying this was the most fun homework you've ever had. Yes, because obviously I had you know a short period of time uh, to get all this watched, and it was the most fun I had <laughs> watching anything ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is. I, I think this is historic in Beatles terms. Um, a number of people that I've spoken to are quite surprised that certain things were kept in because the, the Beatles narrative is so closely guarded. Um, it's so closely curated. Um, and yet we see the Beatles at work here. It's um, more open than has been in the past by anything released by the Beatles and, and the Apple estate that we get a really good insight into the working practices of the Beatles. And I think that the thing that I love the most is people get to see that the Beatles were mates. They were really yeah. good friends. They'd yeah. spent so much time together. They knew each other intimately. Um, yeah. And you, you then you also get to see the people around the Beatles who were helped, you know, Mal Evans being one of them, um, Kevin making the tea with his amazing hair. He's, he was ahead <laughs> of his time. <laughs> and, and Neil Aspinall. And you get to see the support around the Beatles as well. So, it, you know, it isn't just four people. Um, it is uh, a bit of a family, you know, and, yeah. and a bit of an extended family. And that was just lovely to see. You get to see at close quarters. I know there's been a version of this being released, but you get to see at close quarters that Yoko Ono didn't necessarily get in the way. She was just really close, sitting close to John. But that didn't stop John doing anything. It didn't stop him saying what he wanted or mm -hmm. performing how he wanted. Um, so th there's a lot of myths, I think, that are dispelled through um, through this docu-series that I, I think is great, you know. And, and as you said, it it, it begins to unfold the or the multiple narratives around the breakup of the Beatles. You know, we love having just a single thing to say. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. it was that that, mm -hmm. that broke up the Beatles. Um, but I think there were multiple things at play um, mm -hmm. go, that, that you can actually see throughout that process. Paul, where are you from? I, I'm from just outside Liverpool. I'm from a little um, a little town called Ellesmere Port, which is the home of the Vauxhall Astra and Europe's largest oil refinery. It's a bit like Springfield on The Simpsons. Oh, okay. It's that type of vibe. <laughs> so I grew up about 15 miles from Liverpool, um, but I lived there um, for a time and I worked there. I taught music in a college there. So it's certainly um, the closest city to me. And for, you know, for most people around the country, they just assume that I'm from Liverpool, but people from yeah. Liverpool don't let me be from Liverpool because, oh, no. yeah, but that's fine. That's okay. But yeah, I, I love it. And it, I love the city. So um, on to you, Dan, I think for both of us, it's a little bit different in that we've spent so much time immersed in this period. So mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I, I was split between half watching it and enjoying it and half like going into extreme analytical mode about what's there, what's not there. How does this impact the story? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I gave myself two viewings of each episode. And the first one was, I'm just going to kick back, have a beer, enjoy yeah. this for yeah. what this is. This is incredible to see this for the first time to my eyes. Yeah. Um, and then the second time was more taking notes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, to quickly jump off of what Paul said, um, mm -hmm. I actually wrote down the exact same thing as far as family and friends. Uh, yeah. But then the, everyone everyone became an extended family um, in that room. And there's, there was, there was always people around in these moments listening on the tapes that I figured, okay, it's maybe just the four of them, maybe the four of them and Neil, maybe the four of them and Michael and T. Hogg. Mm -hmm. There were like nine people around and, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and walking around and, you know, mal pouring wine during like the master take of, of don't let me down. Um, 
But then you have the thing that, that, that really struck me talking about Yoko. And again, Yoko was there and we're not, no one's going to question that Yoko was there. And no one's going to question that having Yoko there made a certain kind of impression upon the other three. Well, I think um, people are going to question that, but let's talk uh, about that. Afterwards. People are. Yeah. But yeah. if you're talking about someone physically more intrusive, Ethan Russell was on top of everyone at every moment. Now, he was, he was hired. He was not one person's, you know, uh, fiancé lover, but they were able to deal with distractions. But I never heard anyone say, you know, we were recording this album and it was so difficult. There were people in our face taking photos. There was, I guess they talked, you know, George Harrison has talked about having cameras watching us and stuff like that. But it was, it seems to be more of a generic, we're making a movie type thing. But um, there were just so many people around at all times and wandering in, wandering out, having something to say, fiddling with, you know, equipment. Um, and that, that was fascinating to me. There was no organization. There was even less organization than I expected there to be. Maybe, mm. maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, and that is absolutely clear. It was never the four of them and Yoko in the room. And mm. Yoko, again, it doesn't seem like at any point. There, there are things that we know she did. She spoke more on the tapes than, than the television show. We... We know, though, that she was never at any point saying, you know what, don't play this, play that. She was never yes, sort yes, of yes. trying to interrupt right. the, the, the creative process. Um, it's not like she was completely quiet. Uh, I, I feel like in the show there was sort of uh, equivalence given to her and Linda as far as being mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. yeah. When, in, when I, I think it seems clear that Linda had a very different role yeah. that month. And when she spoke out, she was kind of speaking out before everyone arrived when, you know, it was just her and Paul and Ringo and a few others, as opposed to when Yoko would speak in the larger group about, no, I think we should do the show like this. He was speaking for John with everyone around. That's the problem. Uh, when you mm -hmm. know this intimately, like my first time watching it, I was processing everything and loved it and was so excited. And then I woke up being like, Oh, but what about this and this and this? Mm. And it, you yep. know, thinking about the narrative arc, it's like, oh, he's telling a story here. I mean, he's telling a great story, but let's not be fooled. He isn't telling his version. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and he had to because, you know, people spent 50 years complaining that Let It Be had no story, which it, yeah. which it didn't. There are lots of stories he certainly could have told. When you have people who know these details like yeah. we do and, and some others yeah. do people who don't know the first thing about the Beatles. So it's like, it, I think he did as good a job as he could given how, I mean, it's the Beatles, how broad it is and how many kinds of fans there are watching this. Absolutely. He's done an incredible job, hasn't he? He has managed to please, I think people who'd watched the first, the first film to dispel some of those myths mm -hmm. there is in the original, there is no story. The Beatles set this arbitrary thing. They go, right, we need to make an album in, in, three weeks you're like what they, they put themselves under the, their own pressure and and they're so serious about it that's the shocking thing to me they don't go hey guys um we're in charge you know let, let's do it next month yeah and I, it just speaks to their work ethic mm. um, you, you can see mccartney is the engine of the yes. beatles yes. um you can certainly see some of the tension between him and george at various points you can also see i think what what came across for me was that Paul was Paul realized that he was he was speaking to George in a particular way and he yeah. wanted certain things from George but he couldn't stop himself and he was just like I just hear myself mm -hmm. you know <laughs> yeah. being like this you know you can tell he, he just can't that's just how he is 
but obviously George just got a bit sick of it. And are we doing spoilers in this episode, Diane? Yes, hundred percent. If you're listening, <laughs> sorry, you know spoilers all the time. Okay. This episode. <laughs> so, so the big spoiler at the end of part one is that is that George leaves the band, which is I don't know a beautiful way to end part one. I think you go, okay, yeah, this is really interesting. What I found was that the family dynamic is really important. You know, there's that scene where where Ringo tells Michael Lindsay Hogg, like, just because we've been in a bad mood or whatever, we were grumpy. grumpy. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean that it's the end. If it is going to be your last TV show, you're running TV show. Yeah, but you're only surmising. Well, just because we got a bit grumpy. No, I am. We've been getting grumpy for the last eighteen months. No, but I don't want you. I don't want you to be unhappy. I mean, because yeah. like I love you, like I love your three colleagues. And I think that's so important to know, and that's why the concept of family is so important because they can grumble and they can get mad at each other, but you see how deeply, deeply connected they all are to each other. Like when you see this, you see how they half speak to each other. They speak in code. They they light up with each other. They're so responsive. And then when they argue, they get over it pretty quickly. And so mm-hmm. you just see how incredibly close they are. I thought they were all incredibly likable. I mean, obviously they're the Beatles and so they're among the most fascinating people in the world, but it's just, they were all so sweet. I thought they all came off really well. All of them, all of them for me. Um, Again, I've spent a lot of time looking at the footage and listening to the audio and seeing the visuals and the body language did make a difference. You know, you see the chemistry, how quickly they smile at each other, how much they're looking in each other's eyes. Also, some of the things like at the very beginning when they're getting set up and, you know, we've been told that the Twickenham sessions weren't as good as the Savile Row ones, but I actually felt like that wasn't that disorganized. I mean, it was terribly disorganized, but on the other hand, that reminds me of every big project I've ever been on in my life. You know, like every yeah. time you you start, there's that first few days of like, okay, what are we doing? I think their big problem was that they knew they wanted to do something, shoot something, and they weren't clear about what their objective was other than getting something on TV. You know, it's like, remember Paul's like round circle for Magical Mystery okay. Tour? This time they had less, except for vaguely it was for TV, you know? And so to me, that's the, the big problem. And they don't have, they have people around them that are supporting them, but they don't have any senior, strong people around them mm-hmm. other than George Martin. You you almost have to wonder, and you, and you see it, I think, more than you just hear it on the tapes alone. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Lindsay Hogg is trying very hard to make something happen. And yes. I think they view him as like, you know what? That's fine. You're not one of us though. Like you're, yes. you're part of this project but we don't answer to you. We don't want to answer to you. And you know that we don't answer to you. So you can make all the suggestions you want. We still think that you you almost wonder how much they decide not to do things just out of like kind of playing around with them. Right. There is this weird tension to them feeling like they have to deliver and that they're not in control. And then at the same time, they change things all the time. So they do have Mm -hmm. control. No. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a hilarious character in this whole thing. I mean, he's so tone deaf in kind of a funny way in that he's always bumbling in, in the middle of like important Mm -hmm. conversations, making things worse. He was hardly in his own film. He was hardly in Let It Be, but there was no way, there was no way around having him be sort of a, a supporting character in this film. If you want to tell any sort of story and Peter Jackson had to include him. 
Well, and and it's important he's there because you know what? He's creating half of the problem. I don't blame Michael Lindsay Hogg. It's kind of the fact that they didn't set this up properly at the beginning and he kind of exacerbated it. And it's got to be the best because I mean, the hearts of millions are with you, you know what I mean? It's got to be the best, it can't be. That's how it goes every time we do anything, it's always going to be the best. I'm not saying like you owe it to the world or anything like that, but... Because whenever they're working through their issues, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg talks about like, where are we going to do this, guys? It's like, oh my God, just let them, let them get their chemistry first. Mm -hmm. I think for for me, um, and this might be, you know, less for viewers outside of the UK, but that's, that's, that is class on show. You know, Michael Lindsay Hogg is definitely not from the same social class as the Beatles. The Beatles are acutely aware of that and play on that. He's not aware of some of the in-jokes with the Beatles, mm-hmm. clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's mm-hmm. clearly not actually aware what's really happening, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, at different times. And it's just, it's beautiful to watch. It really is beautiful to yeah. watch. Because you're right, they sort of, um, they take his ideas on board, but, you know, or sometimes pretend to and then go, yeah, okay, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I, I am, I, I do wonder whether they go, oh, yeah, we'll do a, bo- a boat and we'll get people there and back on a boat and all, whether they're just actually, you know, taking the mickey out of him. I'm not sure. <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. I think that they are open, but he's pretty funny because like on that very first date, Paul was like, I think you'll find that we're not going to go abroad. And that doesn't deter him at all from no. his plans. Right. You know, he's very tenacious. Yeah. I mean, he's American, but his mother was British or Irish. I don't know if he would have known that kind of class system being American. I mean, he looks like he, he dresses the part. He's always smoking cigars. He's got uh-huh. a cravat. He's got an open shirt. You I know. know when he's like 28. Like, yeah. Michael, are you 28 or 65? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did half expect him to have a smoking jacket as well and, you know, very much that. But then you, you contrast that to Clint John's and you oh look at God. some of his outfits. Oh, my oh. God. Like the one in part three where he, he brings out the big fur, like he literally looks like an eagle. With, <laughs> with, <laughs> that man has the best wardrobe I've ever seen. I mean, oh, like yeah. he put George Harrison to shame. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Like he is a fashion icon. He was brilliant though. I mean, I, I loved, I mean, I made a joke about it before, but I love the way that, because you could tell the Beatles took him in because yeah. John Lennon calls him Glynis. And that mm. might be, anyone watching that would be like, oh, okay, that's the rocket tree. But actually that means that you're part of the Beatles circle because he doesn't do it all the time. It's just every now and again. And that's just John Lennon's wordplay. That's his way of connecting and communicating with people, isn't it? And the wordplay throughout this whole series is just stunning. You know, they they riff on each other's songs they, they make up different words for each other's songs. Yeah. That's what I mean. They're so in flow with each other. That's what I think we see is that how in flow. It's shocking to me how quickly they go into harmonies. Yeah. Uh, the way they went into harmonies without any sort of even, okay, you could take this, take this, the way they would break into it. And this is something you hear on the tapes, but to see it, they just do it and it just comes out of them. And it's like, all right, well, wow, well, that's, that's. Let it be. Okay, great. <laughs> there was some just some deadpan stuff too, like George Martin talking about maybe we shouldn't let Magic Alex build the eight track. <laughs> I was so I was I, I spoke yesterday to uh he's, he's a colleague of mine, Ken Scott, who engineered uh the White Album alongside Chris oh, wow. Thomas. And we spoke a bit about this because he's gonna give a talk to my students and oh. he was saying that um 
there's bits that he loves about it and there's bits that he hates about it. And the bits that he loved Ooh. about it was this dispels some of those myths that, that they were all at each other's throats and they were arguing all the time. <laughs> uh, but the bits he didn't like about it, he said, you could tell it's been edited by a non-musician because there is parts where, and I thought this was my stream and maybe some of the listeners have experienced this, where, you know, the like Ringo will be hitting a snare, but you don't, you don't hear the snare till later on. So it hasn't been edited in the right, um, you know, with the right frames. So then mm-hmm. you, you know, you don't get that immediate connection to being in the room. I don't know whether that's the stream or whether it was done like that. I don't know, but that is, that's high praise indeed from someone who was there around that time. And, um, he was just, he was saying it was really nostalgic. It brought back loads of good memories and seeing, seeing Mal Evans there. And, mm. um, it was really positive, I think. Um, they're they're really sweet guys, you know. For all we hear about these views of Paul being bossy and John being this and George being bitchy, and like they're all so sweet when you actually listen to them, and they they work incredibly well together. Yeah, I mean, Paul is a bit bossy, and John yeah. can be a bit difficult sometimes, and George does go into himself, but that's not all the time. That's just that's just the, well, the like, human yeah. nature of it, isn't it, really? Well, it is. It's true, but but it's not as extreme either. No, That's what yeah. I mean. Like Paul's bossiness is not what I would conceive of as being extremely bossy. He looked a lot more like a confident leader, right? I, I, yeah. I mean, he 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 knew what he wanted. He was trying to be as clear as he could about it with people who were of of differing levels of reception at different times, right? I mean, there were times where they immediately went into it, and there were times where they just weren't feeling it. But you know, we all kind of get like that sometimes, right? Yeah. So he just seemed like such a, a, a confident leader uh, where, where sometimes you hear things as being bossy, the, the body language and, and watching them interact visually, did, it didn't yes. feel quite like that to that depth. I agree because you see their body language and they're often quite close. Like you can see the closeness mm-hmm. of them when they're talking to each other or they're listening to each other. And that kind of offsets you know, what they're saying or, you know, in the argument when Paul gets up and walks around and you kind of, yes. you kind of, it, that all of a sudden changes everything. You know, you see how Completely. he's stressed and he's walking around and he's trying to figure it out. I think as well, I, I play in bands and I've played in bands since I was 14. And that was the beauty of this. I'm watching probably the best band to come about it to, to date. And they do things that my band did. I mean, they're slightly better musicians than some of the bands I've been in. <laughs> but, um, you know, just, just watching it, I think but the non-musical perspective from people where Paul would be seen to be bossy, he's not doing it. He's not slighting George personally. And that might be, you know, it could be, you know, it could be wrong. I doubt it. But um, he's doing it. He's trying to serve the song. And, yes. and a lot of people that I've spoken to have worked with big artists, with big producers. They will do anything to get the best that they can. Mm-hmm. And if that involves upsetting someone, mm-hmm. then they'll do it. You can see that he's not too happy about upsetting George, but he can't stop himself. He just wants yeah. it to be the best that he mm-hmm. possibly can. Yeah. So yeah, that's the that was interesting, and that's the tension. The song is the song is what's form, foremost here. They all collaborated on each other's songs in some fashion, and um, you know you hear it on the tapes, and now I think obviously a much broader audience can see it. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess yeah, George really did contribute here and they maybe they weren't quite as bored with Georgia songs as we all think they were and they may have argued oh. over it but yeah. but you know all of a sudden there's there's a little bit more to it so yeah yeah did you guys have a favorite episode part two for me why part two I think because you see the change of venue 
um, how it really affects the creative process and and then in walks well slowly because you know I, I did always wonder how Billy Preston ended up on the record and you see how he ends up on it but he is he's just stunning and you can see that they love him they mm-hmm. all love him mm-hmm. you know John's like uh, can you set Billy up and can you get him a microphone and can you get him a drink and like mm-hmm. he's, in inst- yeah. he's instantly and the funny thing is you see the first part, the first half of part two, they're talking about, you know, George is like, we need to get someone else in. Mm-hmm. And then Billy Preston just sort of turns he, up. Yes. And the, the, when when uh, he plays, when they're trying to find the riff for I've Got a Feeling, and, and he plays it, and you see from, from you see Billy's back and Paul's face. Yes. And Paul's face light up like, like he just, you know, invented sliced bread or whatever. And they all equally... Yeah. got why Billy was so important. And that was, it, it, I get Paul's sort of uh, reticence of, of having him join, and that's a whole other universe, but I don't think it was yeah. ever because of his musicianship or because of the man or because of anything other than yeah. other than that. So, he, I mean, he lit up the screen every single time he came on. Oh my God, he was amazing. Paul, do you have anything else to say about Ken Scott? You know what? You, you should you should speak to him directly. I, I wouldn't like to mis, misquote him, but okay. um, he just said it, it made him really nostalgic about the process because for a long time, has been telling a lot of people it, they weren't at each other's throats. You know, they weren't Ken or Chris weren't interviewed for the re-release of the White Album, and I, I don't know why. Surely we need to hear yeah hear those people hear their voices because they were there. You yeah. know. They can speak to what was happening at that particular time. So I think eventually Apple will slowly, you know, loosen their grip on this this um, tight narrative that they have around what happens with the Beatles. And this is the first step, I think. I think people are going to see the Beatles as human beings, the Beatles as a band. I just wish that we, we have now a lot from this one period that is clearly actually incredibly productive in the end. I wish we had a few other because I don't think it's necessarily the way they were for the eight years, you know, but right. I mean, I'll take it. It's better than yep. nothing. Okay, so I had asked you guys to write down um, some of the highlights. One of my favorite things about this all the way through is watching the Beatles read out the stories and headlines about oh, them. Yeah. That is the best bit of cinema I have ever seen. And then and then their comment about it and the way that they react to it is yeah. just brilliant. It's just brilliant. I love that. They're really sort of um, taking a, an ironic look at the things mm-hmm. that are written about them, which is really nice. Like at the beginning when Paul and George are looking at that magazine, I think Ringo's there too, and they're just making fun of it. And it was amazing to see how aware they are of how their image gets spun and that they don't care that much, you know? Yeah, because they know they know who they are, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that there's, there's been a narrative spun um, a little bit later, I think, once the Beatles split around... Um, certainly John Lennon becoming a different type of person 
but you don't see that type of person on camera in in this in this feature. Peter Jackson all. said that. He said, "Look, the 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 um, John Lennon of 1971 was not in this film. No, and not that I think he changed personalities. I just think he had a, you know, a, an anger then potentially that he didn't at this point. Yeah, you just don't see that at all. I mean, uh, another highlight for me um, was Peter Sellers turns up. Mm-hmm. He was probably, in my opinion, just because my dad loved the Pink Panther movies and mm-hmm. we used to play them pretty much mm-hmm. every day. But he is probably one of the greatest comedy actors of all time. And John Lennon out Peter Sellers did Peter Sellers mm-hmm. on that video. You, you watch that. Like, that's the greatest, one of the greatest comedy actors of all time. And he turns up and he's like, yeah. oh, what's going on here? And John Lennon just does his thing. And uh-huh. it's just that stunning to watch. Well, he also leaves very quickly. Oh, that was, I mean, that was on the tapes. You hear, it, it was as awkward to see it as it was to hear it on the tapes. <laughs> because, I mean, it, it's last, it doesn't last that much longer on the tapes, maybe an extra five or so minutes. But it's yeah. a very awkward, uh, awkward meeting that no one yeah, knew I, how to react, or Peter Sellers certainly didn't know how to react. I feel like that was a little bit of, um, you know, a protective cloak. And they're just basically like, can you just go away? Because we're yeah. kind of in the middle of something. Yeah. Um, I mean, you see and that he when, felt it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but you see that with Dick James when he turns up as well. I mean, you see mm. that. You see the animosity, and he's trying. Although his he's best a little less. Friends. He yeah, he's a little bit less sensitive. You know, he's trying to engage them, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's trying his best, but they they really don't want to know, which is uh, which is oh. great. Although you've seen, I mean, Diana, you've talked about recently uh, the the Apple film from '68. And um, they kind of speak to him in the same sort of speak down to him in that same sort of way. So he's he's certainly used to the way that Paul and John and certainly George speak to him. Yeah, he's trying to engage Paul, and Paul is yes. mostly. It's quite funny actually how yeah. how, how disdainful Paul is. Absolutely, but it was good to see. It was good to see that sequence just because it's it was part of it. You know, it, it to someone like me that was interesting. Anything that happened the day that George left to me was interesting because you never know what little clue you could find. And yeah. maybe it's not there, but anything could sort of be at least another another stone to unturn. Absolutely. So. I went back and was just like, okay, what happened on that day again? And the yep. pro- and thing is, I think it really was a buildup, but was there a trigger? And of course, you know, like one of the things that the, the, the film doesn't tell us is that, you know, he and Patty are having marital problems. Exactly. And which to me almost should have been in there because, you know, yes, there were band issues, but if you are separated from your spouse... That's going to mm-hmm. influence everything in your life. You know, you're going to be like a thousand times more sensitive to everything. So, I, yeah. I, and I, I I understand the idea of not wanting of the filmmakers not wanting to make it sort of a dirty laundry type situation. But Patty wrote about in her autobiography. I think yeah. if they're going to put up newspaper articles, even if they didn't, you know, Chiron it or or whatever, they could have just had that one sentence and cited her own book. But right. Right, right. Well, yeah, I agree. Well, I, I think that was extremely important. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the backstory. You know, you just read that kind of tension. Um, you know, the seeds obviously were there. So it's not like it was just him, you know, mm-hmm. starting an argument because he was hurt. But I think that anybody who's been through any kind of like issues with somebody important to them, you just become extremely sensitive to anything else that makes you feel 
hurt or isolated or not appreciated, which is exactly what happened, you know? Absolutely. I and it, I mean, you, you don't see, Patty, I think you see Patty Boyd in maybe one one scene, mm-hmm. don't you? Yes. Um, and that, it was a yeah. sweet scene, actually. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think you, you, you sort of come to understand from her absence what might be happening at that particular point if you're aware of what's happening at that time. Yeah. But yeah, by that point in the show, you see... Uh, plenty, obviously, plenty of of Yoko, plenty of Linda, uh, more Maureen than I ever expected. But you don't see Patty until the very, mm-hmm. you know, near near the end. So she is definitely, con- I I thought conspicuous by her absence in that sense. Absolutely, and you know, she wasn't coming and smiling for the camera. Like it was a very definite. Mm-hmm. She comes across, gives him a hug, and then leaves, and that's kind of mm-hmm. like Patty Boyd, everyone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that that's that's an important part of the story. It it is. An important part of the story that the one person who's having real marital problems at the time is the one who leaves the band. I mean, it's, it's life, you know, it's yeah. kind of like it is part of the story. But anyways, yeah. back to back to favorite things. Paul, do you have <laughs> more? I've mentioned it, but just the just the way Billy Preston just comes in and injects this beautiful um it's beautiful magic into this story because the, the the Beatles they're not necessarily flagging because I think once they move to Apple Studios, they feel better. It's their space. It sounds better to them. It feels more intimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but once Billy Preston comes into the fold, it's almost like a light goes on for them. And it, it really moves the project on. And it, that's something that I noticed. Um, just as a, just as a musician, I'm watching it as a musician. If Billy Preston turned up with to, to play with my band, mm-hmm. I would feel <laughs> just the same. I'd be like, this, this guy is mustard. Is incredible, and he just injects that, and he's yeah, he, he moves the project forward. The one thing that I thought was really interesting was how engaged they really were at the beginning. I was very very surprised by that. Like maybe day one, day two, they were starts and stops. They don't know what they're doing, but they had some good days in there where they actually were making good progress at Twickenham, and you never hear that. Like it is always the story that things really got going, but I don't know. Like the the couple of days before George left. Lennon and McCartney were really on fire again. They were really interacting well. Yeah, I, 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 don't get me wrong, because, you know, the first part of uh, when they moved to Apple Studios, Billy Preston's not there. But I, I, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just got a sense of it that they didn't... Um, Twickenham, they, they, you could tell that they, they were doing okay at Twickenham, and you're right, they were quite productive. But I think mm-hmm. it's because the space was so large, yeah. they didn't feel that intimate with each other. And once they come to Apple and they've got their friends around them um, a little bit more, I don't know. I, 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 it felt for me the atmosphere was different. I mean, I liked one and three better than two, personally. Mm. Um, Dan, did you notice like a, a change? What's your thought on this? Yeah, I, I, I am with you. I liked one the most um, and, and probably three more than two. You see that in Twickenham, they're, they're, in a, they're on a movie set. You see that in Apple, they're in a, a studio. And it's, I think it goes beyond just the comfort level. It's being in a place more suited to what you're doing and having a more traditional uh, uh, control room and having a more traditional way of doing things. There had to be something more than just, I don't want to say there had to be something more than just Billy showing up because Billy showing up did make an absolute tangible change, but there was, there was more, there was more, just everything, everything sort of came together at once. George being back and Billy being there and being in their own studio, just the, all those things added up. I don't think it was. And George I Martin. Think if, I think if Billy, I think if, and George Martin, I think if Billy Preston was in Twickenham, I think it would have been 
th- that aspect of it would have been just as good, but it still wouldn't have been like, oh, well, now everything is perfect because Billy's here. They still would yeah. have been in big old Twickenham, you know? And yes, George Martin being around more. Um, there seems to be less Michael Lindsay Hogg at Apple yeah. also. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, George Martin was present. He was at least a figure that was comforting. You got the sense that George Martin was going to make sure that everything was okay. And I think that they switched more to, we're also recording these. Like, it's just something mm-hmm. that's much more familiar to them. Absolutely. But, that's absolutely right. Uh, but, but my point is, is that everything I read is like how much things changed and got better there. And I kind of was, I was surprised when watching how much chemistry there already was in Twickenham and how mm-hmm. productive they were at that point. But the, I found some of the, the interactions in um, Savile Row, like there was still dynamics going on there. I, I was just going to ask Diana, what, what, just to elaborate on that, which, which, which dynamics in particular? Well, I think Paul in Twickenham, because it was his project, but we clearly know that John has agreed to it. Like John and Paul have a side conversation where Paul is kind of like, you know, you said that you would do this. And like, he's kind of reminding him that like, why aren't you stepping up a little bit more? Do you remember that? I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of important because it was kind of like, clearly John and Paul have decided on this and then they show up and... John is there. Like, I actually thought that John was more present than I thought he would be. And and he increasingly gets more present. But in Twickenham, they, they kind of have this view for what it's going to be. And then, you know, and then George walks out. And I think it had partly to do with Paul. It had partly to do with John and John and Yoko. And that's brought up in the meeting after he walks out as how much that's an issue. But I think John uses it to to gain a little leverage. And you see, when they come to Savile Row, I personally felt like Paul had a little less control at that point. I think that Billy actually did settle everything when he came in. I don't know. For some reason, he seems to have balanced everything. And I think it was exciting for them. But all of a sudden, all these issues that they were having with their music were sort of solved by him, or at least helped by him. I think as as well, hierarchically, you know, it allowed George Harrison to not be at the bottom, as it were. Um, Interesting. And not necessarily that there's a hierarchy, but you can tell from watching this closely, the dynamic between John and Paul is so strong. Yeah. Those two know each other intimately and they are in charge of this band. Yeah. It's, It's painfully obvious from that. Yes. I mean, there's points where George is talking and Paul doesn't even look at him. And why do you think that is? I, I don't know. Cause I, cause I, cause I don't think Paul defers to George. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. it's just that that's the dynamic in, in the yeah. Beatles. And I think at this point, you know, that they're at a level of maturity that George Harrison's like, you know what? I'm kind of, I'm kind of done with being the baby of the band now and being a little bit overlooked. Cause he has that conversation, doesn't he? Where he says to John, you know what? I think I'm going to just do my own album, an album of my songs. Mm-hmm. And John's quite supportive of it. He says, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, that's cool." Because George is like, "Well, that'll allow me to do this. See if my songs work." Yeah. And then we can still carry on doing the Beatles. So but I think I think that would have been great, actually. You know, and because I, I don't think that George wanted to leave the band. He wanted to change the dynamics. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I thought 
that George Harrison was surprisingly engaged in Twickenham at first. Like he came in, I was actually surprised to see how game he was. Yeah. And you can see it diminish as Lennon and McCartney get more connected. I think maybe George came in thinking, okay, now I am writing more songs. I was more engaged in the White Album. This is going to be different. Yeah. And I suspect it wasn't. And as I said in the beginning, to me, watching it, knowing that he and his wife are having issues, that that would have exacerbated because he's on the outside. And I think it's primarily a professional respect thing, but it's also a little bit of an interpersonal thing too. Absolutely. I mean, Lennon and McCartney are such a formidable force, not just in that band, but in the world at large at that point. They'd sold millions of records um, they've written so countless hit songs. Yeah. It's, you know, they've got so much, in the words of Pierre Bourdieu, they've got so much symbolic capital that mm-hmm. you, you can't win. George Harrison couldn't win an argument with them. He mm-hmm. couldn't say, well, actually, this idea is better. You know, Lennon McCartney were like, uh, we know because the songs that <laughs> we've sold actually yeah. um, tell you otherwise. So I think, that, you know, there's, there's that, and that's probably one of the contributing elements to, to the Beatles breaking up I would say is is the maturity and as you said George Harrison wanting to change that dynamic and I think John and Paul possibly not being able to I don't know if they would have ever been able to I don't Mm -hmm. throughout the 70s I mean Paul actually says some nice stuff about George uh but Lennon McCartney remain obsessed with Lennon McCartney throughout the 70s you know (laughs) so I want to add one thing about Billy the one thing that they didn't do to Billy that they did to each other was tell him what to play. You had interesting, you know, yes, Paul, yes. Paul, Paul, and John at different points have even told Ringo, you know, do this pattern. They certainly yep. told George what to play. They told each other what to play. They yep. said just, just do your thing, and they their eyes lit up when they heard it. And we saw, yep. okay, this is the first the first time he's playing this riff. Oh well, that's the that's what's on the album. I mean, he just. Yep. He invented stuff out of thin air, and they never once said, well, that's not quite the mood we're looking for. There is a couple, if you go back and watch it, there's a couple where McCartney says, oh, yeah, th- this needs to be a bit more gospel. Oh, it's like standing over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. But you're right. You're right. It's not to the same level of micro detail of which notes mm-hmm. to play and how to play it. They've gone, this is Billy Preston. He knows exactly what he's doing. But I, I thought that was interesting that um, it was it was McCartney again asking Billy Preston, I'm like, yeah, maybe you could just do it a little bit more like that or play the riff <laughs> at that particular point. No one, you're right, no one else did. You didn't hear George Harrison telling Billy Preston what to do. I mean, but but that gets to a conundrum of, you know, Paul also was the most producery of all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so I can imagine that would be annoying to people, like respect what I do, but at the same time, to your point earlier, Paul, what is he supposed to do if he has a vision? Yeah. And and that's it. You can see you can see him. Like he, he physically can't stop himself from, from telling people to this. You know, he just he just cannot do it. And he, he knows he's upsetting people, but um, he just can't help it because he just wants it to be the best that it can mm-hmm. be. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what that whole initial you know the exchange between him and George and George saying I'll play whatever you want and I won't play anything at all if you want. That you know that was blown up in the original film mm-hmm. but that's just mm-hmm. such a small part of this three-parter which is i think again a, a really nice insight but but you're right dan nobody really says to billy oh yeah um do this and then come in on that bit and come in on that bit because billy's sensibilities are so incredible 
He yeah. was ju- he was the perfect piece at that particular point in time. Yeah. He really was. Yeah. And and the, the fact they knew him for so long um gave them that sort of ability to trust him in a way that uh, Nicky Hopkins, who yeah, mm-hmm. certainly they knew and had worked with, maybe they wouldn't have had that same sort of right. Yeah. Oh, totally different thing. It, he knew them before they were famous, so he's in the club. Yep. I think exactly. that was it as well. It's like, oh yeah, we know Billy from the trenches in Hamburg, yeah. basically. So Billy gets, you know, they had a shared experience, and so uh, there was there was that that collective atmosphere in there as well. the the other The other highlight for me throughout was just the amount of songs that they know. And that goes back to Hamburg as well. They're just in the middle of, and just mm-hmm. hit us with another song. And they all know it. They, they all remember the chords. Yeah. Just incredible. And God bless Ringo. That, that, that was actually a surprise to me and a joy is how much I absolutely loved Ringo in, in this. He's and brilliant, isn't it, wasn't he? He was so sweet. I mean, what a beautiful presence. And to me, there's a little storyline of Paul and Ringo that goes through this because, you know, they have such a nice relationship and Ringo is so supportive of Paul's leadership, you know, in a nice way. He's not elevating Paul over the others, but he is giving him support. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's the, he's the one who turns up first when George has left. Mm -hmm. He's there for a little bit and he's just hanging out and, and you know, yeah, he he speaks really sort of kindly about George. Let's go and see him. Well, and yeah. then they're trying to get John Lennon on the phone, and then so that so that's that probably shift in dynamics that you're talking about is uh, that Lennon uses it as leverage to not come yes. in for a little bit, which is yes. uh, smart on his part. It is another thing I'm going to piggyback on. Ringo is is he's so curious um, about everything, wanting to talking to Michael about filmmaking, so curious about all these different things, and because of his relationship with everyone and how much everyone loves him, it elevates everyone. Uh, in one of my this is not a major highlight, a little tiny highlight. Ringo hanging up his kids' drawings, like uh, next to his drum set, was. Oh, I did not beautiful. see I missed that. that. That's so cute. Oh. You see him at two different points. He has one little drawing, uh, like a watercolor. And then later in the day or the next day, you see like a second one. And it's clearly oh. from his kids. And that also made me sit there and think Ringo's always looking so, poor guy always looks so tired. Yeah. And it occurred to me, uh, Jason was a year and a half. Yeah. So, of course, he's so tired. I mean, no matter what, the guy is not getting any sleep, no matter what's going on. One of the sweetest bits was when Ringo and, and Michael and Zihog were watching Paul play piano, and he's like, I, I could just watch him play for an hour. And then they have that little interaction where, again, he's so defensive of the group, like, just because we've been grumpy for the, the past 18 months. You know, but yeah. I think that's a really important statement. That that's how Ringo looks at it. it. Is not necessarily that we're done, but we've been in kind of a bad place. Because I really think that you know, if, if there hadn't been Klein and Eastman's and some of these other things, they could have gotten beyond the grumpiness. By the time of the concert, they're getting out of the grumpiness, and then you know, you see, so you hear mm-hmm. like, da da da. You're kind absolutely, of Klein, absolutely. You know. So one of my favorite things was when um, it was during the time where it was it was either the 13th, I think it was the 14th, where um, Paul is talking to the young, I don't remember if he was a PA or if he was one of the younger oh, people, just yeah. describing the, you know, what it's like to play on the piano. And, yeah. and in general, 
all of the piano sequences of him uh of him introducing songs, the same thing on the tapes. I mean, t it was always, it's been fun every single new day on the tapes, you hear Paul introducing some some new song that will show up on Abbey Road, on Ram, on McCartney, and it's just, it, it's, it flows out of him in such a natural way. But, mm. but, but Paul at the, so Paul at the piano as a highlight, and then specifically Paul giving his time to this kid and, and describing, describing it. So. I had that on my list too. That was hilarious to watch because Paul is explaining how you write songs and in no way does it, he explain it. And the, <laughs> right. the takeaway is basically buy a piano because all the songs are in there. It's like Paul right, is right. the worst music teacher ever. Oh God. And at some point he says how you have like all the chords are there and you're just sort of <laughs> rearranging them. And that's, that's how you get a song. It's like, all right, yeah. that's, sure. That sounds <laughs> no problem. I'll go ahead that's and cool. Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> An another highlight, I, I really liked how many solo songs, eventual eventual Beatles solo songs, they did make sure to cover them as being performed by the Beatles. I know you had to do All Things Most Fast. It was such a big part of their uh, of their time at Twickenham. Um, Give Me Some Truth really was very minor, but they made sure to include that on the box set and, and, and in the film. But to get another day was really nice, to get even that little tiny bit of, of Backseat in My Car. And I think it's really... It shows people who aren't familiar with this era just how much the Beatle DNA kind of just seeped into the solo years. And, you know, you, you think, oh, the Beatles are broken up, and now here we go, here's Wings, and here's the Plastic right. Band. It's like, That's well, right. it's not really, not really quite. Yeah. I mean, you know, give me some truth. You, you, you see now how much Paul kind of wrote an ad to that. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 felt, it felt good to see that. Yeah, one thing that it does dispel is Lennon and McCartney are still writing together, even if it's just bits mm -hmm. and pieces, the fact that they're always like, remember, we were going to do this, like they're in an ongoing conversation about music, and they have this arsenal of songs that they pull out and they're working on, you know, again, even if one of them is starting and writing the majority of a piece, they're helping each other so much still. Mm -hmm. I think what struck me was exactly that same thing, but it, it was, uh, you get to see it on film where McCartney's really invested in anything Lennon's doing. Yeah. And and the other way around. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to George, it isn't the same thing because they are, as you said, obsessed with Lennon and McCartney. But you, you, you know, you see that urge once John starts playing a song or starts, starts a song that they have to, McCartney has to work through it with him. Mm -hmm. um it's it's a compulsion i think mm -hmm. um that was fascinating to me that was at, that was really really fascinating and just and just watching get back and and the installments of that and how they arrive at the different stages of it is just incredible for me that's so insightful of the creative process of just he's you know mccartney just strumming away on his bass guitar and you know and they're picking up bits from the papers all the time you know it starts about you know immigration and and those types of things. Because, you know, I've heard it written that every time McCartney would sing Get Back, he'd be looking at Yoko. But <sighs> I was I was looking out for we that. We never see it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. We don't see it. So, no. again, another myth dispelled. Yeah. You can see you can see where it is. And, and, well, John you know, said that. That yeah. came yeah. from John. Really? It did, okay. yeah. It's a shame he's not here to see it because I think... Yes, it is. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I think he'd be quite surprised in the way in which the Beatles all really care about each other because they do 
you know, and McCartney said it recently. Yeah, it is a big deal to have your new girlfriend sat next to you in the studio. But yeah. actually, we did. I think we did okay with it. And you, yeah. you you watch it, and they did okay with it. I think so. I think. They did a good job. Yeah. Would would they have been better without Yoko there? I'm not saying in general. I don't know. She seemed. I don't know. Maybe they would have. Maybe they wouldn't have. I'm not sure. Uh, well, you know, Paul makes the point that he can't. He has a hard time writing with John when she's there. Although right. you do see them writing together. But I would say that there there was a little bit of a barrier now. That you know, I can't imagine what it was like before the barrier because they already seem sure. like working incredibly well together. Um, I think I John. Mean, they wrote songs. Probably... They wrote songs from scratch in in the studio. We saw them write "Get Back." "Get Back" came from thin air. So mm-hmm. uh, I know it wasn't it wasn't eyeball to eyeball, but they all you know they were they did work together to write songs. I mean, I, th- I think Yoko's a bit of John's security blanket. So mm-hmm. um, you know he was probably better with her there in that he felt stronger having her there. Be, yeah. So there there's that, uh, but that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, but but I also think that it contributed to some of George's issues too. Well, that's a different you know? issue. Yes, I agree. No, but I I, agree just in terms of like the band, I think that there are underlying dynamics. Now, if Yoko had been like Linda, like coming in regularly and saying mm-hmm. hello and sitting in the background, to your point earlier, they're used to people coming in and out. I mean, I do think it contributed to some of the weird dynamics that we've got. You've got mm-hmm. Paul saying like, I know after this, you're going to be on a bag on a stage, you know, which was confusing because John is actually fully invested. I kind of felt like chill, Paul, you know, and I know you're worried, but he doesn't even look at Yoko when you're around because actually John is quite back in the fold. By the fall of 1969, John is still saying Plastic Ono Band is a side thing, but I do think she unnerved Paul. I don't agree with people that say that, that there was no impact of it. There was. Sure. I think there's a difference between, and I'm agreeing with you, I think there's a difference between John having Yoko there uh, to help to help boost him versus John having Yoko there to have her contribute. Yes, Yoko's there as emotional support for John um, at a time when he's not feeling good versus, you know, the potential threat, a creative threat, because John is fully lit when Paul is there. I actually felt badly for Yoko. Uh, and I talked to a couple of other women that watched it that actually felt the same way. Lennon McCartney is still so lit by each other. They're mm-hmm. still so into each other that I don't think that, you know, Yoko as a creative was all that much of a threat. I mean, you know, if they would have let her come and do her whatever we want to call it occasionally to add an element of which I call it, Paul. I, I, it just sounds like a strangled cat to me. <laughs> yeah, to be honest. but I mean, occasionally it's cool. It gives it a shot of adrenaline. <laughs> I mean, if they if she would have come and punctuated things, that was cool. But that was kind of like her her bit, you know. What do you think, Paul? You know, I'm just not a big fan of Yoko singing, really. Well, um, what about her her presence there? I no, mean, I think I'm I'm p- gonna piss a lot of people off by what I'm saying, frankly. No, I I think it's quite balanced and it's quite measured. I I think you're absolutely right. I think it did influence it, but probably not to the extent that people think. That's I right. Think that's I think that's that's the point, is that yes, Paul probably did feel compromised by Yoko being there, but he also I think in a way understood it because he you know he knew John Lennon better than John Lennon knew himself sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I think he realised what the type of support Yoko offered to John yes. that Paul couldn't. That's right. Um, 
I think that's the whole, like, that's the battle that Paul's having constantly is he knows John needs Yoko emotionally, but it's always the threat of John leaving to go off and do things with Yoko, like, you know, sitting in a bag at Albert Hall, you know? Paul, Paul was the one that introduced John to the avant-garde. I think it's more the fact that he's a kid from Liverpool and he's going, well, now you're going to be sitting on a bag on stage. What are people going to be thinking of this? You know? You think? I yeah. think I I think Paul's worried about because he I even saw a headline recently where it says that Paul says John Lennon left the Beatles to do art stuff with Yoko. So I think that that's what was scaring him. <laughs> that's 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 been Paul's worry the whole time is is the Beatles disbanding because yeah. the, that that's that's the band that he he loves. He's put all of his energy and his life into it. He saw himself as a Beatle. Probably but more John than Lennon. John Lennon. Them. No, John Lennon loves the Beatles too. Absolutely, I mean, but, I, but mm-hmm. I think John Lennon loves Lennon and McCartney more than he loves the Beatles. I, I do think too. John Lennon could, could have carried on him and Paul doing something with another drummer and another guitarist or something like that. But that's I interesting. Think, I think McCartney wanted to keep the Beatles together at all costs, and I think that was that was probably another contributing factor to the Beatles breaking up. Is is trying to hold on to it for in ways that that he probably should have let go. Yeah. I agree with you about Lennon cares more about Lennon McCartney for the rest of the seventies. Basically he's like, the, yeah. the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Beatles were Lennon McCartney and he's fine with that, you know, and I, it, sometimes he sways and says that you needed all four of us. But I think as like the engine of it, he's pretty clear about that. Hmm. Do you think that Paul, we know how important Lennon McCartney is to Paul. Do you think he's different and that it's more important for him that the band be together? I think Paul sees the contributing factors from each person within the band and, you know, he, him and John are the stars of it. And I think, yeah. I mean, th- they both, re- they all realized as soon as they disbanded and, and did their own solo projects that it was totally different. I think that was a realization. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I've been a Beatle, but this isn't the Beatles anymore. And I think, I think Paul was aware of that more than any of them. If He it, is more present mm-hmm. than all of them, for yeah, sure. He, he, I think Paul understands the ramifications of things faster. I think he feels the potential of them blowing up. Yeah. In a way that I think John and George, I don't know, maybe they don't, it's, they're not thinking through 18 steps ahead, you know, like Paul does. I think, I mean, you see it on the film. I, I, George is just is happy to make music and he, George just wants to be happy. That's his thing. And I think John Lennon just wants to be safe. Safe, And Paul McCartney wants to keep the Beatles together and he wants them to do great things and he wants them to do the next big project. Um, And you can see him. He's the engine in that whole process and it can come across as being bossy or authoritarian. But um, there was no... I mean, they even say it in the film. I think I picked up one of the, the quotes. It was like, well we've got no one to tell us what time to get up now. We've got to sort of tell ourselves to, to get up in yeah, the morning. Yeah, that's Paul, of course. Yeah, it's yeah, talking about how they need some form of discipline. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. On, our, on our own on our own at the holiday camp. That's it. <laughs> was, yeah. was, I think, the line. So it's, you know, during during the uh, lunchroom tape and during that whole sequence on the 13th, or prior to that when they're all sitting around, Paul keeps on talking about the four of us, the four of us. And I had written about this recently. It's very clear that it's the Beals are the four of us. And I think that that sticks with him to the very to the very end. The, it's, the Beatles are John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Period. That's it. Well, and that's something that you know we've addressed in my last series, which I'm calling Aftermath. I think in some ways John kind of resents the fact that Paul loves the Beatles as a foursome so much, and he kind of wants wants Paul to prove to him that he cares about John Lennon leaving. John's so 
self-centered in some ways, and he needs to be safe. He needs to know that Paul loves him a lot yeah. and, you know, cares about him personally a lot. And so I think that's kind of at play as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's now evidence that McCartney knew the Beatles were the four of them. Um, he, 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 I think he understood how iconic each of them were. Mm. You couldn't have, you couldn't just have three of them. That's not the Beatles. That's just three Beatles and somebody else. Um, that that's interesting though that you th- that you see John wanted a reaction from Paul. I suppose that's classic John Lennon, isn't it? He just wanted a reaction, didn't he? He did. Um, he wants attention. Those, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And certainly from his best mate, McCartney was his best. And and those you know you, you see it on film. They they absolutely adored each other musically. They both adored each other. You know, mm-hmm. they, they both highly respected each other as amazing songwriters and musicians. Because you've got Ringo at the back, who just loves all of them. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I just think you're all fab, yeah, you yeah. know. But those two, when they lock eyes, yeah, um, it was always Lennon and McCartney. And you see that in the film, too. It's There's lo- there's, lo- there's loads of really cool things. Yeah, the- there's a scene in Twickenham where John gets all of a sudden really excited and starts dancing. And he kind of runs up to McCartney. And it made me laugh. He was like a little kid. And I I think it was right on the day that George quit, actually. It could have been the day before. But it was just like all of a sudden their chemistry was building again as they worked together and they got such joy from each other. Like that's the thing is Lennon and McCartney, when they're vibing, have a lot of joy and their, you know, their eye contact is so intense, you know. There was one bit like they're singing a song and Paul sings something and John adds something and Paul mouths fuck off. Did you see that? No. It's kind of like there's so much going on between them. And actually, that speaks to something that was cut. When Paul's complaining that John, you know, expects them to have this telepathy and they're oh, just yeah, yeah. not there yet. And he's mm-hmm. like, and it's really hard. This is before John's there. And he's like, I know why he didn't say anything in the meeting with Yoko. And that's really important. Part of the reason he's not talking is because he thinks that they should understand him. If they're as connected mm-hmm. as he thinks. And Paul's complaining about the fact that they're not there yet. Did you did you not talk about it much last night? Well, there were just too many people. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's the trouble, you see. Because that's it. It's like with, your, with our heightened awareness, the answer is not to say anything, isn't it? But it isn't. Because, I mean, we screw each other up totally when we don't do that. Because we're not ready for your heightened vows of silence. We're really not ready. We don't know what the fuck each other's talking about. Uh, uh, you know, we all just sort of get... Oh, yeah, right, yeah. But see, that's it. That's why John doesn't say anything. Because <laughs> he, you know, he just... That's, that was, there was something the other day. I just said, so what do you think? And he just sort of didn't say anything. You know? And I, I know exactly why, you know. I mean, I wouldn't if... Yeah, well, that whole sequence, I mean, that was on the, the morning of the 13th when they're all sitting around mm-hmm. in the circle before the before mm-hmm. the lunchroom. And it, um, I understand to tell the story, it was about George leaving at the time. But in reality, yeah. most of what they talked about was was Yoko. It was John and Yoko and how Yoko yeah. spoke for John the whole time at that, at that meeting. That stuff Yoko said yesterday isn't, I mean, she was talking for John. And I don't think he really believed any of that, you know. No, it's, it's just John didn't talk. You see, Yoko talked for John. Did George stay? In the middle of all of that, actually, George went. He said, well, I'll see you. 
John talks these days. That's why I say writing a song with him. Right. It's a bit embarrassing because I do think it's sort of... What? I start examining yeah, well, emotions. Yeah. And that was not really... I mean, it was sort of like just quickly kind of touched upon and then and then taken off. But the, in, the film did not portray that in the way to the depth that that actually happened. Yeah. It's the only way you're going to... That's why he didn't use that. I believe it was John. Yeah. Yeah, a key moment, that wasn't it? Yeah. And he put it meant to, I think John knew what he was talking about. Too. Oh, John, sure <laughs> he did. <laughs> That's why George said it twice. Meant John said, I don't understand you, John. George said, I don't believe you, again, you don't get an understanding yeah. of one of the things that George is really upset about is Yoko being there. And Yoko speaking for John and John not showing up for George, mm -hmm. you know, and really being present. Like, that's so disrespectful. If somebody, one of your best friends, has an argument with you and they're sending in their significant other who doesn't really know you. Mm -hmm. like, I can understand why George would have been furious about that. There was no indication as to why George left the meeting. It said, George, you know, it didn't go well. George left the meeting. And, you know, the, the meeting, the meeting wasn't, I don't remember if I wrote this down explicitly here. The meeting initially wasn't about getting George back in the band. This meeting was scheduled days earlier and they talk about it before George quits. It was an Apple board meeting. And um, it, it, I think that's a little important that that meeting was already going to happen. That it wasn't like we're trying to rescue George and get him back. And I think yeah. it's important what the problem was that made George leave because they say it explicitly the next day. So yeah, it wasn't, a it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, you know, I, I, I mean, yes, I'm sure having a TV show and things like that played into it, but, but that wasn't the real reason why George left that meeting on the, on the 12th. Right. And the meeting was more about Yoko. And, and again, yeah. I mean, I don't think she's to blame for the Beatles breakup, but I, I think that she is a factor. I don't think that there is any kind of um, Machiavellian plot on Yoko's part to blow up the Beatles. That's not what I think. I just think that her presence there contributed to some of the problems that they were having and that, you know, if we're actually going to tell the story, we can't just say, well, see, she was quiet the whole time. That's not the story either. And that makes me wonder if the Ono estate or the Lennon Ono estate asked for some stuff to be cut because Peter Jackson has said neither McCartney nor Starr asked him to remove anything. That's all he said. Well, that tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so that's an important element. And then John comes back. Is is that when they have the lunch meeting afterwards, Dan? Like, And, and we hear yes. the, the cut. But there's some significant stuff cut from that, too. Well, I'll, this is the first thing I want to say about the lunchroom meeting is the technology that they have created to, I mean, in the whole film, but the yeah. technology to isolate, it, it, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm still in disbelief to be able to hear that stuff so clearly. I don't know, if, Paul, if you've ever heard 
that lunchroom discussion, go go no. on YouTube and search for you know Beatles lunchroom or something along those lines. It's okay. it's just noise. It's just 25, 28 minutes of, of noise that if you have your headphones on really loud and you throw it into you know audacity and slow it down by seventy five percent, you could maybe sort of make <laughs> out kind of what's going on with enough listens to hear it in the special was was shocking and remarkable yeah unbelievable. what i want to unbelievable what i want to say though about the actual content for one thing it was interesting that the chiron was paul and john get away for a private conversation but it's a private yeah. conversation that really was paul john ringo yoko, yoko yeah linda and um neil i think yeah. um so so straight away it was not a private conversation mal yeah. and mal of course. So um, it was not a private conversation. It was not a conversation between the two of them. It was, there There were not many times where it was just the two of them talking to each other. It was either Paul talking to Yoko and Linda talking to John or, uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was a conversation. It was a conversation amongst several people. Um, I th- So I, I thought that was an interesting decision. <laughs> um, I think that uh, so much of that conversation was about Paul and John. Mm-hmm. In reality, so much of the conversation was about Paul and John, but there was, and there was some about, you know, how do we get George back? But it was really not quite the, I, I don't even really think that was the focus of, of that, of that 30 minute sequence. Right. Well, and actually Yoko, because they basically start to talk about George and then they get, Yoko get keeps on Yoko into- keeps on trying to say, Yoko keeps on trying to say, don't you guys want to talk about George? Well, but I think, and I think that that's telling in its own way too. I'm not sure why she stops it because they needed to have this conversation. And, you know, I actually pulled up here. John is saying like, I'm trying to ask, do we want him back? Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, do I want it back? And then John goes, is it enough? I'd have to swallow my ego for you. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to smother my jealousy for you. And You know, they switch into their issues, but I mean, those are important. They're mm-hmm. talking about ego and jealousy. I think that um, the the Lennon McCartney aspect of 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 that moment wasn't what the story arc was about. It was about George Harrison left the band. How do we get George Harrison back in the band? And I mean, it's it, it, it's the same reason why they don't when they walk in in reality and go in that circle on the 13th, Linda and Paul and Neil and Ringo. Yeah. And, you know, the, the first thing was, you know, how was the meeting and or, or what was everyone wearing? And, you know, uh, someone says, who was on uh, John's shoulder? What, what was John wearing? You know, was it a Japanese uh, uh, artist? So it was, it was all about the fact that, uh, you know, Yoko did all the talking. Yoko was, was, was central to this whole thing. And the, the Yoko relationship and, and, that's where the conversation goes into Paul having such a hard time writing with John um, yeah, and yeah. telling the story about writing I will and, 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 you know, having to stare at the wall. And that was in, that was in the, the show, but it, it sort of was almost a tangent in the show in the show. It stuck really close to the, to the George problem, which as if you're telling that story, well, that makes sense because otherwise you're all of a sudden throwing in. Well, no, but that bothers me though, because yeah. part of and like, I understand what why. I felt, I'm watching for it because, you know, this is a story that I've paid close attention to. But if you know that Yoko is a much bigger deal and they're all kind of dealing with it, knowing that 
John and Paul are dealing with ego and jealousy issues is important to know too. You know, that's why sometimes Paul is a little bit softer with or defers to John. Like he defers to John in that conversation. Right after John says that I have to sublimate my ego and, and jealousy for you. And so there's some really important ideas that are just cut. And again, it mm -hmm. leads us to erroneous conclusions. No, absolutely. The, the exact line when they entered the room on Monday, John looked great yesterday, was what Linda said. Who is he wearing? The usual was Michael's response. So it's, you know, it was, it was clear that it was clear to everyone that she was... She was the, 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 she and the Lennon McCartney thing was central. Paul crying wasn't because George wasn't coming back. Well, you don't it, think it, so? Uh, I think that Paul, well, here's something I could tell you. We know the visual was real. I mean, we saw mm -hmm. it. It was incredibly moving and shocking and, and incredible to see. Um, mm -hmm. When he said, and then there were two, he said that we saw the response of everyone on mm -hmm. the tapes. Everyone laughs after that. That was a cut. That was a, that was an edit. And then number two. Tom and Jerry. Simon Garfunkel. I uh, know I said it because you told me. So Paul says, and then there were two, and everyone laughs. And then they go into a conversation about Simon and Garfunkel because it was about, you know, oh, there's two of them. And it goes on, and obviously everyone's moved. And the, the Build Me a Buttercup stuff, never in a million years when I've heard that did I ever think that Paul was, you know, trying to keep from crying. And it was, again, remarkable. But um, I, I never had the feeling in watching the show, I never had the feeling that George's departure specifically was enough to bring him to tears. Well, uh, that's, I felt that John Lennon McCartney had some power dynamics and stuff going on, especially visible at Savile Row. But mm -hmm. that I did actually think had to do with the Beatles breaking up. That's my reading of it. At that point, he's just like, I don't know if I can will this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, into being. What do you think, mm -hmm. Paul? You know, it speaks to what we were chatting about before and, and the fact that McCartney has so much invested in the Beatles uh, and it's the four of us. It's, it's telling that he says, and now there were two. But mm -hmm. yeah, he, he does seem to be quite emotional at that particular point, doesn't he? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know whether... That's whether that's because there's only two of them from the Beatles or whether he's worried that he might not get George back. I mean, I never got the sense that they thought that they weren't going to get George back. No, he says right. that, doesn't he? At some point, he's like, I assume he's going to come back. Yeah, you know? yeah. Ex exactly. And that's part of the reason why I didn't think he had that emotional response to George, because I do think that he never thought that George was really committed to quitting, like quitting, quitting. Well, here's another thought, too, is that another line that was cut was Linda says um, that Paul's on pins and needles. I'm not telling you. Yeah, he's on pins and needles. Wondering what's happening. And that suggests that something was said. There was some kind of statement made that Paul's worried about. Or they can't get through to John, and Paul knows John's doing heroin. So who knows what Paul's worried about? There's something going on with John that is very, very concerning to Paul. And I think it's the combination of whatever John's doing and going through and the issue with George that is compounded by, you know, any issues they're having in the studio, as well as George's issues with John and John and Yoko. And I wonder if Paul just thinks this is a mess. I, 
I, I don't know if I can fix it. Right? I think we're saying the same thing. I, I agree with you. And when John comes in and they have a conversation, I don't know if, um, you know, the casual viewer would notice. I think we have to pay attention to what, <laughs> it's hard because we have to pay attention to what lyrics John quotes throughout. Um, and I think sometimes they're incredibly meaningful uh, and he communicates with Paul through through lyrics, I think. The problem is, is sometimes they're throwaway lyrics like he's rambling. And then sometimes I think they're meaningful. And so having to figure out which is which is, is very difficult. But when they're sitting there, he does start to talk about some of their early lyrics, you know, Lennon-McCartney compositions. Like he, he can see that Paul's upset, I think. So I take that as being meaningful, especially because two minutes later, when Michael Lindsay Halleck talks about what we were talking about and they go straight into the space between us. Like John is addressing and focused on the issues between them at that point. So did you guys find that meaningful? Absolutely. And I thought it was, I, that was another highlight for me was the fact that they, they pulled out some really early Beatles songs in, in spite of the danger and things like that, that um, McCartney's only talked about recently. So he must have seen, he must have seen some of this footage, I would Maybe. say long before yeah. Peter Jackson did. Um, I thought, yeah, I thought that was really cool. There was lots of, you know, it's like when I meet up with my friends from school or people that I grew up with, we, we, we tell the, ourselves the same stories all over again. Oh, do you remember when you did this? Yeah. But they do it in music. Yeah. And it's, it, it is beautiful to watch. And I, I, I think that's a really good point, Diana, that, that, the casual viewer might just see that as them working through songs, but they are actually communicating with that. They, they yeah. are reminding themselves who they are. They're saying with the Beatles, do you remember we wrote this song and we wrote that song, but we did that 10 years ago when we were really young, for example. And uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see it in music. You know, you normally do it right. with your friends with stories, but they're doing it through songs. And John said that, like, and there's this quote in 67 where he says, he was talking about the fact that they would, uh, that they speak through music and it's faster mm. for them. Uh, and and John in particular, oh, I'm sure Paul does it too, but I think John communicates important things through his lyrics. I've read that like, oh, the Beatles were trying to rekindle by going back to their past, that people kind of see it as an example of them really running out of steam. And in fact, couples counselors say that that's a really, really good thing to do. Like it's a very healthy thing for couples to do because you get other kind of ideas in your head and you forget some of the stuff that you've done. And it's good to go back to that. Oh yeah. Remember this is us, you know? I, I, yes. I mean, it's a saying they're playing our song. I mean, it, it, yeah. it means something to, to have that sort of connection to this piece of music or, or whatever it is. And if, if it's in another context, but here to this piece of music that bound these two people from when they were children. And, yeah. and got them, shot them off on the rocket to where they wanted to go and, and got them to this point. So I, I never saw it as being, I never understood. And it was one of the reasons why I started listening to the tapes 10 years ago. I never understood the idea that they were bored so they were playing old songs. That, that never made sense to yeah. me. It, it always made sense to me that they, they were excited so they would go into these old songs. And that is really what you hear and I think it's what you see. It was just one thing. Oh, remember this one? That oh, that that made me think of this song, and then that song made me think of this song, and they're all like we said before. They're all so invested and so excited by it. 
Yeah. So, and it's not like they're just going back and they're like, well, I guess we have nothing else. It's like they're bouncing back and forth from like, cause it's a joy for them to go and play the old songs, two new songs, right. two songs from five years ago. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden every little thing George is suggesting. And, and actually I really enjoyed uh, George in this and uh, he does contribute a lot, you know, and I understand his frustration. And of course I love Lennon McCartney and I love seeing the chemistry between them, but George, when he was engaged, which I thought he was at the beginning. And then when they get to Salvaro, he's really engaged. He really wants to contribute and he's full of ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. And some of his guitar work as well is exceptional. It is yeah. brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's got loads to contribute. It's, it's a shame that Paul was so focused on John that he probably didn't see it as much and maybe saw it a little bit later, potentially. I just, I, just to pick up on your point about, uh, couples therapy i think that's exactly what's happening they are <laughs> but you know interestingly i don't think lennon's doing it just to mccartney's reminding the beatles who they are and where they came from mm. and sometimes about you know hamburg like you know when billy turns up they they become a little bit nostalgic about yeah, hamburg yeah, yeah. and they talk yeah. about it and you know that that they were the formative years for the beatles they were the formative gigs that's where the beatles really when they came out to liverpool we were easily the best band in Liverpool because yeah. they played so much together and played so many different songs. Um, I, that's a, it's a really, it's a key point. It's a really, you're right. It's a really key point. And on yeah. that point, Diana, uh, yeah. in regards to that, the, the something you hear when you listen to all the tapes and something which I do think Peter Jackson did a great job of, um, and Ringo said it explicitly near the end, how, uh, you know, it was a question of like, like what kind of story do you have? And Ringo said, well, it's the, it's the Beatles autobiography. Yeah. And that that's really what it was. And it wasn't something that was forced. It was something that over, you know, you learn about Jimmy Nickel, you learn about the yeah. dealing with Manila, you deal, you learn about all these different uh, parts of their yeah. careers um, just in their own words. And um, I mean, even, I feel like that Jimmy Nickel story about him uh, coming in late uh, on on the drums, it sounds it's it looked as if Ringo never even heard the story before, and maybe he wouldn't have. He certainly wasn't there. Yeah. So um, this period is so interesting for that reason. They tell their entire oh, the stuff with India. I mean, I was struck by the film from India that they were showing, um, ta talking about all these different parts of their careers, but not necessarily in a way of like, and now we're in our final chapter. It was just kind of ca catching everyone up to this point, you know? Hey, there are all these people wandering in and out. We're going to tell you our story that brings us to this moment right here that you're, that, that, that we're all here together. That's how I, that's, that's how right. I viewed it and heard it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is funny. They're talking about potentially a divorce, but then you see the arc of them going back up. And John actually said in 1970, he's like, well, it'll either be an ending or a new beginning for the Beatles. It, that happens to us all the time. So I, I think they easily could have gone through another cycle in 70 if, if Klein hadn't been there. You know, I think Klein mm -hmm. was the big obstacle at that point. Uh, you know, they were just grumpy for a year and a half and they were going through a new period that could have, could have continued, you know? They, no other band had done what they did. It wasn't like they had a blueprint for this. You know, this was brand new terrain for the Beatles. Yeah. There was no blueprint. No one had been this big before. Mm -hmm. No one had, had done it um, as well before. And, you know, the band were looking to do the next thing, but they didn't know what it was. Yeah, and you yeah, can yeah, see yeah. that at this, this symbolic in this film. It's like, okay, so what, what's it going to be? Is it going to be, um, 
you know, a big gig outside, whatever it is. Um, the, so it, no one had the blueprint in, in a lot of other careers. You go, okay, well you do, yeah, you, yeah. You, you know, you do this step, then that step, then that step. The only other person that they had to compare themselves to was probably Elvis, but he was sort of, yeah, they don't like 16. where he went and they yeah, don't exactly. like where he went, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you hear Paul and John talking and he's like, well, then this is just going to be another album. And John was kind of like, well, that's what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, John was kind of like, well, that's what we do is we make albums. Like he's okay with that. Paul was Mm -hmm. the one that was like, no, we have to, you know, Paul's obsessed with progress and moving forward. This is where a manager might have been good is to calm Paul down. Mm -hmm. When I look at the arc of the story, I think some of the problem is Paul came in with a vision for what they were going to do. And it was, you know, that they had all agreed to, but then, then they kind of morphed it. And then he's always trying to recalibrate mm. his expectations in his mind. Absolutely. And I, I think um, you, you can see, you can see the cogs going McCartney's thinking, okay, what's next? What is next? And I, I, I think seeing him, more than anyone, I mean, Billy Preston loved playing on that roof. Yeah. But you watch McCartney and it just, the light bulb comes on. I think he missed playing live. I think that was another contributing factor to yeah. this. He said that actually in an interview, I don't know, maybe in the early 70s, he said that I was getting bored with the Beatles because we weren't playing live. And mm. you never hear that. You hear about how much Paul loved the Beatles and like, what, Paul, you were getting bored with the Beatles? But you can hear he's not okay with them just recording. And again, the impact of Brian not being there, like by the end, you know, I think Paul was coming up with a lot of ideas with Brian, but at least Paul didn't have to impose, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't coming from Paul. Paul could feed his ideas into Brian and Brian could set things up for them because Paul in, in this kind of compromised role is what kind of upset things and he doesn't like it and i hear people saying well he doesn't like to be the leader but i you know john never played that role before either it's not like john was coming up with projects for them in the past like nobody was that's the point so you know as you said paul like clearly the lead force in the beatles is lennon mccartney but in terms of setting them goals, I think Paul is so goal-oriented yes. that he needs to have some external goals. And if yeah. nobody sets them, he's going to set them. And John and George are just not that way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you, you know, McCartney's coming up to 80 now and he's still playing stadiums. He's still writing songs. And I think uh, that speaks to his drive as a musician he yeah. loves playing live and he loves writing songs and i think he it's you know he'd lost one of those limbs yeah. in in that period of the beatles where he just wasn't playing live um and you see him on the roof he's just loving it yeah he's just absolutely loving it it's it's great okay let me t- tell you some of my favorite bits i like seeing yoko like yoko looked great when it starts she looks really good i liked her little outfit and you kind of see her <laughs> bopping to some of their early stuff which is kind of mm-hmm. funny because so often she just sits there but she was actually dancing to some early lennon mccartney stuff which was cute i loved paul coming in with linda and introducing her as a cameraman i mean very sexist but for those days we'll cut him some slack <laughs> like they, but that's how he introduces her, you know, in a professional way. Mm. Um, I loved those little interactions between Paul and Linda, like when he's hugging her and, you know, clearly he's kind of peacocking for her, like running through all of his songs and making sure that she's watching. But I thought that was very cute. 
I loved uh, Elvis's birthday, you know, when Paul calls out that it's Elvis's birthday and then, you know, they do this little dance and like hail to the king. I thought that was so cute. I loved, and I said this earlier, George Martin's (laughs) comment about Magic Alex, it was so wry, this like very dry uh, trolling of Magic Alex. I wonder how much George Martin knew at that point. I'm, I'm sure he would have been aware you know, he was very au fait with new technologies and what works and what doesn't, being very close to the Radiophonic Workshop. You know, they bring in that new, they go, oh, here's Magic Alex's bass guitar with a guitar thing. Oh, God, that was hilarious. And Lennon's like, how'd you tune it? I was happy to see how much they sort of, a rude thing to say on my part, but I, I, how much they kind of laughed at Ma- Magic Alex's stuff and that they didn't take it. They obviously they yes, took it seriously yes, enough to let him, they took it seriously enough to let him build the, the studio, but they, I mean, they just laughed hysterically when they actually brought in the, the invention. So maybe by then they sort of knew. All right. I love this that is, too, actually, yeah. Dan, because when you read about the Beatles, you get this sense that they were so naive and they were just like yep. taken for a ride and they kind of know they're like, ah, eh, whatever. And this is what I mean about them be kind of like cool, sweet guys. I don't think they were always like that, but you know, yeah, you it know. was very much like, oh, that's, oh, there goes Alex again. You know, yeah. have him, have him make one. We'll, we'll play with it. Sure. Has to help and contribute to something. He's, he's that is music is magnet. Yeah. You know? Um, but George as well, he mentions that he took uh, the advice. I can't think he said to, whether it was John or Paul, but he said he said that I had to finish it there and then because like mm-hmm. he said, like you always say, make sure you finish it. I, I think it was, was old, to John. He I, said. Think was, I think I was old brown shoe. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. John is dismissive sometimes of George, like the, of, of I mean mine, like, you know, this is not a waltz or whatever he says um, that we're a rock. We're, and roll we're band. a rock. We're a rock band. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Paul is more dominant probably with telling George what to do. But also I do feel like George is trying to work with Paul. Like he seems engaged with trying to work with Paul. He he says, I mean, in the, in the something sequence, uh, you know, I'm, can, can you help me out with this, Paul? And mm-hmm. it's, it's John that jumps in and says, you know, uh, uh, attracts me like a cauliflower or whatever it is. But he asks Paul for the help. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, and I think I mean I would, if I if I had to choose, <laughs> I would ask Paul for the help as well, because you're going to get something like that from John. I'll just say cauliflower, just say whatever comes into your head <laughs> until you find the word. Yeah, and you're like mm, that's not helpful. <laughs> imagine imagine being in a room where you can ask both. True. Yeah, but then um, Paul doesn't really say anything. Like he kind no, of no, he doesn't, does he? Yeah. Which is interesting because he, he certainly would have for John. Yeah, I'm going to tack on one last thing to what you were just saying yeah. about John's dis- dismissiveness. One thing that was cut, which I think would have been interesting, it was a small enough thing, but it could have added to some sort of greater thing. Um, uh, one line that I noticed, so 26, 27, somewhere around there, the story of the day, George is playing to, I think, Mal, isn't it a pity? And he was saying, this is on, on the original Niagara tapes, and he says, you know, I play this for John, he just, you know, blew it off, said it sounds too much like something else, and completely, you know, he didn't want to hear it at all. And he then goes ahead and just plays, plays his name to pity. <laughs> and it was magnificent, but John yes. wanted absolutely nothing to do with it and just totally said, you know, we're not, we're not going to work with that. It was George relaying the story. So it's, it, yeah. it was certainly something that was just continuing. That was not in the film. That was not in the show. Yeah. 
I've got uh, Glenn, who I just I just was amazed at like what a fashion icon he was, but also just oh how how lovely his interactions were with and how confident and calm he was and how much like you said, uh, Paul, how much they let him in. Just every Mal scene was adorable because mm-hmm. Mal is adorable, um, and and how happy he was to be participating, and how he just magically made things appear. I mean, how great was Mal? He was brilliant. Well, you know, he <laughs> he kept the show on the road. He really yeah. did. He was like a one-man production team. Absolutely. The Heather bits mm. were so sweet. I'm so happy those are there. They they all played with her so well, and they were so lovely to her. That again, I think that contributed to my feeling that they are truly lovely people, you know? I loved Paul playing Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, oh yeah, I forgot about I, that. I wrote that down and you noticed obviously what it was being played over. Well, I did actually, it was like John Loves It was Yoko? all the different John Loves Yoko clips. And it was a, it was a, it was a kind of an evocative scene just because I'm not even sure what I was supposed to be feeling, but it was, you know, Paul singing Nothing Is Real and it's, He's sort of kind of uh, giving a visual of just sort of being lost, playing this song, and then it's all just headline after headline of John Loves Yoko, John Loves Yoko. And I thought thought that was effective. I don't know if it was effective on purpose or not, but it was effective. Oh, it was on purpose for sure. I mean, this is my I assumed it it. was. Yes, yes, yes. I just think that's such a misreading of it. It's kind of like, Peter, how did you look at all of these hours of Lennon and McCartney sparking off each other and think that that was the issue? You know, like John is not, you know, being dragged from Yoko to go and participate with Paul and the Beatles. He's very invested. There's just other things at play. I think it's much more about needs, needs for security, for having a partner who's always there. You know, it's a it's a complex topic that we've gone deeply into before, but you know, I'll, I'll address that in a later episode. Back to my fun list. Also, John playing I Lost My Little Girl. Yes, all song. Yeah. I think they're both doing that to each other, you know, pull, trying to pull each other back with meaningful songs. Pafidis talked about this, and I totally agree with him. I've never cared that much about the rooftop performance, except for the looks of joy between the, the guys. But at the same time, I loved the idea that the Beatles were of the UK, and they had lifted the UK, and they had gone on the roof in London. And there was something really so fitting about, like, they had driven swinging 60s and they were still present and they were still like there was just something very meaningful i felt did you guys feel like that oh some of those interviews were amazing they were like oh you you, do you know who it is and they go well it's the beatles (laughs) and they go do you like them and he goes well my son likes them (laughs) you know and even the old guys who they were trying to get people to say like oh this is you know this is a public nuisance and everybody was so supportive you know like it was just part of like the cultural fabric and there was so much love Well, uh, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't, there are definitely people complaining, weren't there? Well, there were. There was 30 complaints, apparently. But but for the most part, I thought that the comments were pretty positive. Yeah. And and Michael Lindsay Hogg finally had his movie, his, his ending with people wandering out of the wilderness, all gathering to find out what the concert was going on, right? You know, people coming out of their offices to look up and see what was going on. That's so. right, right. I'm like you in that the, the rooftop was not... It, it, it's it's fascinating. I did not think I needed 42 minutes of it. I didn't need three <laughs> versions of Get Back. I, I, going yeah. into it. But I was very excited when it was done. I was very pleased with it when it was done. 
I loved how excited they were afterwards, mm. you know, when they were all listening to the playback um, and just on the theme of uh, the, the ballad of Paul and uh, Ringo, you know, when Linda and, and Paul are holding hands afterwards mm. and then Ringo puts his little hand on. Yes. Too. So yeah. cute. Like yeah. there was just so much like physical affection between them. That was so wonderful to witness. I loved seeing Maureen. Uh, mm. Maureen is so cute. Didn't you guys mm. think Maureen was cute? Great hair. Great really hair. great yeah. hair and great makeup. I loved the John saying that this feels like home, you know, where mm. he's talking about, like, he's talking about uh, the fact that he feels good there. It feels like home. Like, to me, John's not going anywhere. He's saying it's like home. And Michael Lindsay Hogg says that John um, told him he did not want to be a Beatle. I loved all of those things. And they treat and they treat it like um, the hotel room. I mean, the the it was such a disgusting scene at times. <laughs> it's true, it's true. How on earth are you are you dealing with this? Well, I mean, it was... that's the problem when you just have Mal, like one. Yeah, person that's a good point. Yeah, everything. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you have an anvil so... in the middle of the floor. <laughs> it's like how we no one trip over the anvil, right? <laughs> um, that was one of my favorite moments was uh, them saying how the anvil was a constant reminder. Of Maxwell Silver Hammer. <laughs> it's true. The, um, Mike McCartney stopping in, Mike in a shiny coat, um, yeah. and Robert Fraser. It was good to see him. And just seeing the the eye contact between Lennon and McCartney was so significant, just to see how much they were reading each other and looking at each other and you know, something you didn't get from listening. And and some bits like you know, I'd always heard the bit when Paul's putting together this theme, this like emotional theme that's running through their music. And John's like, um, you know, it's it's like you and me are lovers. I'd obviously heard that. But to see the way John does it, it's much shyer than I thought. He looked kind of embarrassed when he said that, you know, and then Paul also looks kind of embarrassed after that. And it was it was a very sweet interaction that I didn't imagine when I was listening. I don't know about you, Dan. I was uh, nigh my head. There was a sweetness to it. There was very... Uh, uh... A sense of real sincerity and and like they were kids again, you know. Hey, I like you. Really, I, I like it, you too. That's a revive, it, right? Yeah, it is. But also, Peter Jackson did cut out a bit where John does talk about. I was always playing that game with. Do you mm. like me? So mm -hmm. he like he cuts out a lot of John and Paul's interactions that are a little bit more intimate, actually. Yes. And then uh, there's the bit where John talks about like it's like you and me are a couple of queens, and he repeats this a couple of times. One day Paul shows up and John's super excited. He's like, "I dreamt about you last night." Oh yeah, yeah. And he was like, "It, it was so real. It's like you were there. I could feel. I could touch you." And George, I think, says, like, nothing sexy, right? right. And it's, it's super, super awkward. But again, it's kind of like John sort of forgets there's cameras. I think sometimes he forgets himself, and he got really excited about telling Paul about this dream. he made some of those cuts but you know what this is the good news this is a podcast and so i can play those cuts so don't think i'm not playing all of these things i'm mentioning yes I think please yeah. <laughs> so. be amazing you'll have to play like the 50 versions he does of ladies and gentlemen 
your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it just becomes more and more daft as he it's goes so through. And I just love that. Now your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. He's so he's so charming. I mean, John is uh, dangerously charming. He's so mm-hmm. cute. I his his so- smile his smile lit up the screen more than anyone's, I think. Yes, John's smile is something else. John's stillness too, actually, like how he can just stare is pretty mm. impressive. And he looked John to me, just in terms of looks, sort of ranged from looking absolutely terrible, like he was dragged through the mud. <laughs> Uh, and I hadn't had a shower for a month, you know. And he kind of looked like a little indie guy sometimes. He's so skinny and to yeah. looking incredibly handsome and actually almost pretty boyish. You know, you don't think of John as a pretty boy. with such an incredibly sweet, handsome face, you know. Mm-hmm. Very handsome, wasn't he? Well, I mean, speaking of being skinny, I, I'm planning the next book is probably going to be uh, a sort of, you know, a Beatles recipe book. And it's just basically how to survive like a Beatles. So you cigarettes, tea. Toast and marmalade, and then when it gets to a certain point, you can pour yourself a nice little glass of wine. That's right, and and that's all you need. You don't see them eating takeout. Don't you don't. It's just toast, marmalade. That's it. No, they they get zero nutrition. Where's the protein? What did you think about how they looked? Iconic. I mean, it's I it's it's hard because all those visuals we've had for fifty years, so we know what they look like on the rooftop. We know what they look like on the inside. But boy, to see them, to see them in in that sort of color. Yes. It was so exciting. And just to see even even Paul in black and white was vibrant. And to see them all, it, it, they dressed alike so much. Paul and John dressed yeah, alike yeah, yeah. so much in contrasting colors um, to the point where, you know, it's like, did, did Mal go out and just buy like 10 shirts and he gave, you know, here's three to Paul. I think they did. I think they did, yes. right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. um and you could sort of tell that but even though they, it was like that it, it they still just shone you know and in such in whether it was something as extreme as what Glenn Johns was wearing or sometimes what George was wearing or something so pedestrian is just you know i mean ringo looked like an like an accountant on like casual friday with a pinstripe button down white shirt and jeans and the cuffs but yeah. it was still like that's he he still looks great he still looks great he does they all look so handsome but the one thing I was going to ask you guys, because I don't know whether this comes across in the tapes, is did Mal get anyone to bring some size eight slip-ons for George to try on? <laughs> do we ever hear that, Dan? I don't. I know. don't think. I joking? don't think we do. I don't think we do. So George is very fashionable. I mean, he's outdone by Glenn, but who isn't outdone by Glenn? Yes. Oh my God. It's John and Paul whose looks kind of vary. Paul all of a sudden was like, well, if you're not taking a bath, I'm not taking a bath. And he looks like he stops bathing or at least washing his hair. And John starts to look better. Like John, yeah. you said you, you seem to have the date down for when John washed his hair. I but... think it happened, some, happened somewhere between the 14th and the 21st. <laughs> <laughs> it was good though. And right near the end, his hair is really full and he looks really good. And Paul... Like Paul steps it up again. I think he's getting excited about, like you can tell when they're excited about something. It's like their energy. These guys start Mm. to look good. When Paul is excited about like performing, he comes in with this sharp little suit and, you know. Well, I think they had to smarten up because Billy Preston was so smart. Mm. That's true. With his velvety suits and, you know, beautifully, you know, beautifully cut hair, ready to go. 
He it's was true. Just... He was smooth. Between Billy and uh, Glenn, the Beatles were like, oh boy, okay, we got to step it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ringo just did his thing. I think Ringo always always looked pretty cool. He and... did. He, he did. Uh... Like, Ringo never wore anything that looked bad. Paul can swing massively. Sometimes it's like, what are you wearing, Paul? But <laughs> <laughs> there was a, he, he, I think he doubled up on yellow at some point, Paul. <laughs> he, he had like a yellow shirt, <laughs> yeah. and a yellow... The yellow sweater, yeah. Yellow sweater. I was like, wow, double yellow? Okay. He, he did that. I've seen other outfits where he's like all in green. He was doing the monochrome before it was in style, but it was a lot of yellow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was nice. I thought Linda looked really, really pretty, you know. Yeah, she's she, stunning, isn't she, when she comes in? Yeah, and, uh, I thought yeah. so. You know, before, uh, the, the Wings haircuts did not always mm. uh, do her any favors, and she looks super I, I cute. I don't think a mullet does anybody any favors, really, <laughs> does it? Not even David Bowie. I mean, Sorry. it was cool on him. Paul, Paul sort of. He had a no. couple good ones. No, I know, I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Okay, in terms of the arc, did it change anything for you guys in terms of the story? I'll ask you first, Paul. I mean, I, I think I, I didn't know because obviously we see part of the discussion, don't we? And it just turns up on screen with the with the words between John and Paul. And that's quite open. You know, that they're, they're talking about... Um, I fact, Paul admits, he says, well, John, you're the leader of the band. Yeah. You always have been. And I think that's that's really smart on Paul's part because like Paul's the engine really it was very smart and and Paul mm. is always very smart about that with John yeah it was really uh, illuminating that that little bit that exchange between John and Paul Paul understands that he needs to kind of defer to John to be able to be the engine like he needs John on board to be able yeah. to drive them right yes yeah, abs absolutely. I must admit, I watched it as a musician who's played in bands. I loved it from that perspective because that is, ex you know, that is exactly what happens in bands. It's just four blokes and they are trying to write songs and they're working towards doing this gig. And I, I think you mentioned it before, Diana, they are like a family yeah. and they do fall out, but they then make friends really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um they do say things about each other's songs and they do uh, make comments and there are loads of in-jokes. Yeah. And that's that's the beauty of this. I mean, I, I didn't think I could love the Beatles more and this this made me love them more. Just just because you see you see the raw talent on show, as you said. I mean, the, the final take in, in Apple where they're doing it, the Let It Be, John Lennon, before he starts playing, coming in with the bass or the or the backing vocal, he's just mouthing the words to the camera like he's just taking the mickey, mm -hmm. and that's the one that they use on the record. So, and I obviously you never know because you only ever heard the record, but now you can see that John Lennon wasn't taking it mega seriously. He was taking his performance seriously, mm -hmm. but before he came in, he was just mouthing the words. And and, and for fifty years, we see from Let Be and we hear, oh, they were so detached. They hated playing playing this the you know Paul's slower stuff they wanted nothing to do with it they were so bored well I don't think they were bored look we, we now know what John was doing he wasn't bored they were having fun and it's something which we, uh, it, it takes right now that we get to see it and it, it has blown me away that we have this 
Yeah. Raw talent, I must say. It's just like we already think of them as being geniuses, but you just see how good they are. You know, just so so how creative, like it seems like magic to me. Like Paul says, like all the songs are in the piano, like for you, Paul, not Mm -hmm. for everyone. And you're playing them, which is cool. So thank you for that. But it's amazing to see. And these are such important songs too. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? You go, oh, wow, that's a song that I thought would have taken a long time to write. And it just came in a a short space of time, for example. He's playing these songs 50 years later still. And you hear George saying, like, we've never done so many. Like, it's such an incredibly productive period. I wonder if the Beatles had stayed together, how they would have looked back at this period, you know, and not seen the film and not had Spectre cut it. You know what I mean? Because they were so happy at the end. And all Mm. they did was they continued. They showed up the next week to continue working. It's not like they disbanded, you know, and and went their separate ways. Was this any less experimental in the strictest sense of the word, than Sergeant Pepper, than Revolver. I mean, it, it, it was just as much of an experiment to go in there, all right, we're gonna do this in, in 20 something days. Yeah. And the music didn't sound experimental, but the actual project was. Right, it was really interesting when you heard Paul saying that like, well, we were supposed to play the White Album songs, but somehow immediately they seem to di- yeah. disregard that idea and just be like, well, just write them. Like who decides to write and perform yeah. A whole new album. And that's another thing. Some of their behavior to me is not like even the Paul George thing is not an argument. That's just stressed people talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think that speak that just really speaks to the Beatles that they've, they've gone, they've gone in. And not only have they said, oh, we'll just write a bunch of new songs as they're going through the process. George keeps coming in and said, oh, I wrote this last night. Oh, I wrote this last night. Yeah. And, and what that does is that that brings John out and says, OK, well, I've got I've got to pick up my game because McCartney's game is on it. McCartney yeah. turned. He, and actually, there's a point, I think, where they're chatting and they say, actually, Mal, which how many songs have we got? And then they, they write the list of songs and it's mm-hmm. the album, pretty much. Yeah. And they realize at that point, oh, okay, we've got enough here, you know. That's a beautiful moment because <laughs> as a viewer, you're like, yeah, you're not sure what they've got finished and what they haven't. And that brings it all together, actually. So it's made you love them more. What about you, Dan? I'm grateful that it confirmed a lot of what I, what I heard in those tapes. Um, the, the, the story, the story arc, the um, the relationships they had, the the productivity, the flipping of kind of what I, I know there was a lot of kind of um, you know fear of whitewashing and well this isn't this isn't what the Let it Be sessions were we saw Let It Be we we read Len remembers we know what happened but well uh, you know, when you listen to the tapes I mean that's the whole point is that it's it's not the same thing um, what I've gotten out of it is an appreciation that more people are going to get the right story. I mean, I, I look, I want everyone to read my blog, certainly, but I, it's not going to reach quite the same audience as, <laughs> as, <laughs> as if it was on Disney+. Plus. I know that there are going to be parts of it that are going to be missing because he made an eight-hour thing that kind of appeals to everyone. There's enough in there, there's enough in there um, that I want dispelled Let It Be, but it was a response to Let It Be directly that I thought was was helpful. You know, the whole I'm so tired yawning sequence, which, you know, 
when you think of Let It Be, well, there's just Paul yawning to, to John Songs or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, no, everyone was yawning because everyone was tired because everyone is, you know. Because they're insane. They just did an album insane. and it's like, like a month ago right. and it's January 3rd. Right. It's ridiculous. Exactly. They're absolute workaholics. They, they love being together and playing because if they didn't, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have played all those covers just for fun and spent all yes. that money on footage and spent all that time that was you would think would be precious. The the all the times that they did, you know, like the the double time and the triple time fooling around with songs. I mean, you again, you and I know this. That's on the tapes throughout. I mean, they always did that. That wasn't like, well, they picked out these little anomalies of them kind of fooling around with Long and Winding Road. No, they always did that. They did that straight through. And uh, it, so I guess to answer your question, <laughs> it brought me closer to them, even though I felt very close. It added that whole extra, you know, it's like it's like meeting someone after talking to them on the phone. And to have that experience of like, wow, now I kind of, now I kind of get you so much more. And I thought I got you before. Were you disappointed that, he cut some important stuff. I tried not to be because I knew that it would have to be like a 12 hour series. And again, I would yeah. have wanted a 12 hour series. And there are things that I didn't, I didn't need to know, or I didn't need to see, you know, when they were hashing out the get back solos. That's fine. That's cool. I'm certain that there are as many people saying we didn't really need that. We should have had more of, you know, the lunchroom conversation in context. Yeah. So I, I think it's sort of a no win. So while I was disappointed that there wasn't more of even trying to figure out the show, and I think that was a complaint that a lot of people have said, it's like, wow, there's so much talk about them going to Africa and doing this. I love that stuff. I would hear that. I like that too. I didn't find that point. I would take another hour of that, but I understand, you know, we probably should have a little bit more of the music. I get that. I, 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 I wish, you know, we had Susie Parker in full. I wish we had... Uh, backseat of my car. I wish we had more than fifteen seconds yeah. of that. But yeah. I get why it's not, and I'm I'm satisfied with what we with what we have. I mean, so much more than I ever thought we would have a year ago, right? So it it I I, th I think it's the best we could have had given the sort of circumstances that we're that we're in, possibly. Yes. Well. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, he's tell he's telling a story too, though. It gave a sense mm -hmm. of the camaraderie, the love, the connection, the deep connection of these guys that you just don't get without being able to read the, the body language of them and how incredibly invested they still are. And they are a family. And, you know, John and George are really devastated by Paul's quitting and then suing the Beatles. And, and sometimes I wonder if it wasn't a situation where, where we can fight and we can bitch about each other, but this is like a family. You don't leave. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so you get this sort of great sense of like they're on an upward swing again. Everybody's excited. John's saying this is his home. George is smiling. And then all of a sudden, Alan Klein coming in when he comes. You can see that John meets with him because he feels guilty. Like he's promised him, yeah, I'll meet with you. But then mm -hmm. he comes back smitten the next day. And there are some other elements at play. We know that Alan Klein played to John. We know there's some other elements where it is some of the additional context that I think would help tell a more rounded story. There was a really important scene at an hour and 35 minutes, if anybody wants to look, in the first part where uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg talks to John about like, 
well, you know, things aren't quite the way they were between you and Paul. And he says that whatever the wound, whatever the wound is between you guys, maybe this will help. And John says, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so clearly something has happened between John and Paul that we don't know. It's before. And John and Paul are getting increasingly close. And yet John then goes and signs with Alan Klein. The Alan Klein bit came kind of like the Darth Lord coming into the picture there. Oh, yeah. It's the Sith, isn't it? Just just starting to come into the story of the Jedi. And I think what's interesting, obviously, because uh, Lennon had done the, the circus show with the Rolling Stones, and that's how yeah. he was got. I think John Lennon had seen the possibilities of what a rock and roll band could do. And obviously, Paul's always thinking about what's the next thing. And yeah. so John's clearly thinking, okay, well, th- this manager got them that gig. So let's, yeah. I'm sure that's a contributing factor to it as well. Also, that probably influenced their thinking of what they would do on TV, you know, that oh, yeah. Lennon does that. And, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg had said they wanted to invite Paul, but they said Paul wouldn't have done it without the Beatles, which is interesting. But they probably saw that and said, we can do something different and better for TV. But the thing is, is that John was warned. They were all warned. Like, Glenn was pretty bold, wasn't he? In, like, warning them. I mean, explicitly. I mean, they include in the show the part about how he, you know, if he doesn't like what you're saying, he just cuts you off and changes the subject. Um, on the tapes, he goes on and just says over and over again, he's like, yeah, he's, you know, he's really weird. He's just a, he's just a weird guy. He just repeats it where he's, it, you almost get the sense he's trying to say, hey, yeah, I, I'm saying he's weird. Do you know what I'm trying to tell you? He's weird. Like, yeah. and, and he's just, oh yeah, well, no, he's, he's our con man though, you know? And it's like, no, no, no. Like, listen, he's weird. Okay. Yeah. Glenn's, Glenn's trying to say in a really nice way, don't even go there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that message gets across. No, they're like, he's he's our con man. It's like, no, <laughs> yep. guys. But they were they were worn like crazy. The papers came out with articles about mm-hmm. it. But it's just unfortunate that Alan Klein should have been written off as not, not an option. Because they met with other people and they wrote them off. They should have written mm-hmm. Alan Klein off. But he is a charmer. And he said the right things to John. And that's what was confusing to me. It's like, you can see John and Paul get their chemistry back. And then all of a sudden, John does a move that you know is so going to undermine them. Glenn tells a story about hearing Alan Klein yelling and screaming at Paul McCartney later about signing the contract. And he said it was absolutely awful. Wow. Well, Anyways, Glenn th- John, th- he's on camera warning them. I know. Good on you, Glenn. Glenn came across incredibly well. Overall, I feel like there's going to be a lot more to dive into. Um, So much. But Mm -hmm. I think I loved both of of your insight about Paul. We are going to talk about George in the future. Yes. Yeah, we've got that booked in shortly, haven't we? Yeah, that'll be great because George needs a little more love from one sweet dream. It's true. He does. It's true. He does. Okay, guys, any last thoughts? I mean, now I just feel like I need to listen to the tapes because you guys have listened to the tapes. So I need to to lose 10 years of my life now. I was about (laughs) to say, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Or you could just read Dan's blog. Now you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Everybody should read Dan's blog and read Paul's book and listen mm-hmm. to One Sweet Dream. How about that? <laughs> there you go. What a, what a well, hopefully, the hopefully the people are already, already listening to One Sweet Dream. So 
we That's are preaching to the converted, but they might not have read Dan's blog, so give, give them details. They may be parted.com. Easy as that. For, as in, for though they may be parted. So just they may be parted.com. Right. And what about you, Paul? Your book? I mean, the, the latest book is going to be uh, uh, The Beatles' Health Kick. So it's cigarettes, toast, oh. <laughs> toast of marmalade, and tea. It's just a picture book? It is, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's literally got two pages in it. We've got recipes from uh, across the world. We've got tobacco, uh, we've got bread, and we've got marmalade. No, but the latest book is- Make, from... make sure you leave your bottles of scotch on the floor overnight. Actually, actually, you know how Peter Jackson did have his little montages when he wants to say something? I think he was kind of trying to make a point that there was too much drinking going on. Did you guys get that sense? I mean, I got the sense that they were all drinking too much. They were all <laughs> well, drinking too true. much, yeah. I don't think that there wasn't just one glass being poured ever. There was no. always multiple right. ones. Yeah. I think there was, you know, there was a lot of drinking going on. Yeah. I think Peter Jackson was letting us know that that was definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'd never really thought of that. I just assumed that that was the vibe, but obviously Peter Jackson's foregrounded that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I read that. He actually did a bit of a clip of Paul like rubbing his eyes and looking like. I was like, that's probably pot more than the booze. But right. I thought he was trying to make a point that there was too much drinking going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I look forward to that book. An easier read than your other one, which is what? It is. Oh, the, the other one is Paul McCartney and his crazy practice, The Beatles and Beyond. Um, and that's with myself and Professor Philip McIntyre. If, right. For those of you who are listening, who are interested. And we did an episode uh, on this subject. So anybody who hasn't listened to your episode, and it is a very popular episode, actually. Oh, thank you. No, who that's, hasn't... that's lovely. It's a lot cheaper than the book. Uh, <laughs> and, and I would like to, you know, we don't we don't set the prices the publisher does. So apologies. But, you know, hopefully there'll be a sale sometime soon with a bit of luck. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been wonderful, guys. Thank you so much yes. for being here. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. We'll do it again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time. Lovely. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. See you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please watch up. We will be back with another episode very shortly, and the episodes are going to come out regularly from now on. So stay tuned.